This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And in this show today, we are talking about uh, an album, well, an album and a band that maybe we should have covered before, uh, given, you know, how popular they are, but also they kind of disappeared really quickly. So, you know, I feel like in some weird way, they're overlooked, even though they're kind of revered. And that is the second album by System of a Down, Toxicity, Mm -hmm. from 2001. Um, It does feel like, I mean, they're huge. System of a Down were a huge band, you know, selling out massive venues and stuff, selling loads of records, multi-platinum records. Uh, But then because they split so relatively quickly, like by 2006, that's it. They were, you know, quote-unquote on hiatus, um, but basically haven't done anything of note since. Uh, It's almost like they're overlooked and forgotten about, which is crazy because, like I say, they are revered. Um, But yeah, yeah, we just don't hear much about them. I also feel just in the grand scheme of Thrash It Out that we both knew that one of us was going to pick this band at some point in time. True, true. And so I feel like there are occasionally those bands that kind of sit on the waiting. They're in the waiting room yeah. uh, because we're sort of waiting to see oh, one they're of us is going to pick the them eventually. Yeah. And I think that was the first thing I said when you picked them is like, yep, now, okay, now I can take that off of my list because yeah. I knew we were going to get to that. And it very likely would have been this album. Um which I think is the most interesting one to discuss. And I think it's their most complete album. And so, um, yeah, I'm excited that we're getting to it. Definitely one that as soon as you mentioned it, I was like, yes, yeah. deserves to be talked about on the show. But everything that you just said, I, I feel is also right. They were in terms of longevity, they were, you know, they burned very brightly yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in the <laughs> yeah. landscape. Um, and at a really transitional time too. Right. And so, uh, but even to this day, like going back and listening to this now, I think it still holds up incredibly. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I mean, I suppose that's a spoiler for, you know, our attitude towards the album when we talk about it. But yeah, I don't think there's any question of that. It's uh, still very, very heavy. Um, before we get to that, let us uh, do a bit of follow up. Uh, we have a few new patrons since our last episode Michael Furstenberg, Frederick Liliabad, and Jay Ken. Thank you all for becoming patrons. Welcome. If you want to join them, of course, you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and uh, make your pledge. But thank you to those guys for uh, becoming part of the family, as it were, and supporting the show. Uh, possibly the reason that we have a few new patrons since the last episode is it's been a while, and I just want to—I just want to highlight that and apologise, really, because it's been, I think, more than two months since our last episode, which is actually. I think as much of a break as we took between volumes <laughs> yeah. last time. <laughs> this time uh, we just, we just, uh, we shook it up a little. We started one volume and then took a break. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and it's entirely my fault. Uh, that's what I want to tell the listeners. Basically I, a lot, a lot on a lot of work and stuff going on in life. Um, primarily b- b- between the last episode and this one, I had a new book come out and I had completely forgotten just how much, other stuff you have to do around the release time of a book. Like you don't just sit there and like, you know, smile when it hits the shelves and everything. There's so much that actual work that you have to do around that promotional stuff and what have you that I just did not have the time to spare. Uh, Bearing in mind that I'm also writing, you know, another book at the moment as well. It's uh, yeah, it was a bit silly of me to try and do that immediately after the holidays. Once we, you know, given we got the holiday break as well. Um, I will, however, say, that uh 
Now, I've said before, I think most of our listeners probably aren't into the sort of books I'm writing now, probably aren't cosy crime readers, but you might enjoy the new one. It's called The Dog Sitter Detective Takes the Lead because it is all around, uh, or not all around, but a large part of it is around the music industry. The uh, The victim is an ageing rock star and there are there's quite a bit about the music industry in there and there are even a couple of Easter eggs for people who are really up on their heavy metal history knowledge, um, which I'd be amused if any of our readers, if any of our listeners do read it and, and spot those. I'm not going to tell you what they are. Um, but yeah, as I say, it just it, it, it's entirely my fault. Don't blame Brian. I've just not had the time at all. But we are here now. and Yeah, um, I mean... It's and given also, us a lot I mean, of time to listen to this album, I suppose. For sure. And also, congratulations. And I think I speak for everybody that listens to the show when uh, when I say that we're all super excited to see your meteoric rise as a cozy crime writer. And, you know, you mentioned all the stuff that you're doing around these books, interviews, uh, appearances, book signings, all of those things, the awards that you've won around this book series. I, it's awesome to see. And we're all cheering you on every time something great happens around that. And so I, I think, I feel like our listeners are so understanding of the things that come up that maybe prevent us from being right on schedule with our, you know, <laughs> attempts to be a, a monthly show, at least during our volumes and stuff like that. And so it's all good stuff and we're all super happy for you. So. Well, that's, that's very kind and I appreciate it, but you know, I do also uh, and, and I hope you're right about the listeners, but at the same time, you know, I do take my responsibilities towards Thrash It Out quite seriously. So I'm, uh, you know, disappointed in myself that I couldn't get down to it before now. But anyway, anybody listening in the future will be like, what? <laughs> Won't care about any of this. So let's get on with the show. Uh, and I suppose the first thing to talk about is our last episode, which was the one in, what was it, end of November or start of December, before the holidays, uh, which was, of course, you know, the first track of this volume where we talked about battle beast yes and it was it was uh november 26th right actually yeah. that we uh wow. uh put it out and it was track one of this and really positive reception overall to the show I, it was one of those where um people who maybe weren't familiar with battle beast were really excited after they listened to the episode so uh, i'll dive into the feedback but it warmed my heart to see how uh, awesome the response was so phil said yes although i remember this album i didn't love it but that never stops me from loving an episode uh stewart said was just wondering this week when the new season would start uh while while listening to anthony answer doctor who trivial pursuit questions so he was following <laughs> you in your other podcast yeah. appearances um he says not that i've ever even heard of battle beast before uh, everyone was familiar with the homework by the way spoiler alert i'll just say that right now oh, everybody's yeah. feedback yeah. was around uh yeah, around that. So um, let's see what we got here. Uh, Stuart said, I've started listening to the album before the main part of the episode, and the first part of the first track started stirring vague memories of my youth when I was 11, to be precise. I let them whiz around in my mind for a while, and they settled to this. And he posted a video of Kelly Marie feels like I'm in love. <laughs> yeah. He says, I have no idea where it's going to go from here. Uh, and I think that that's a, like you're either in for the ride or you're not in for the ride with this Battle Beast album. Like it is, uh, I think Circus of Doom, as I mentioned in the episode, is like such a perfect theme for that. It felt very much almost like a stage production to me. Mm. And uh, yeah, 
It says, uh, Todd said, when I heard the opening track, I felt like I was listening to the theme music to an early 90s afternoon animated series. And he's and Kenneth said, my wife was wondering why I was listening to a cheesy 90s film soundtrack. So, uh, yeah, let's see. And, and the thing what is, we like here? we said last time when we were talking about the album, I think the band would probably take both of those as compliments. Yeah, uh, Stuart said, I listened to the album, I listened through the album several times in the episode, top quality chat as ever, and I found myself enjoying the album more than I expected. Admittedly, those expectations were low, especially after the memories of cheesy 70s pop evoked by the first track and also by the vague ABBA echoes. Agree with you there, Brian. But once Nora's grittier vocals uh, kicked in and definitely with the rockier soundtrack, uh, second track, I found myself enjoying the listening experience. He said, granted, I won't be listening to them on a regular basis, and I needed something more lo-fi as a counterbalance afterward, but overall, I'll give a vaguely positive noise about it. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, the praise might not have been super high, but I did feel like the sentiment overall uh, was was overall positive. David said, uh, never heard of this lot before. Knew we were in for something memorable as soon as it was mentioned that they're from Finland. The question with Finnish metal is, is it going to be crazy? Uh, is, isn't, is it going to be crazy? It's what kind of crazy is it going to be? Uh, I'll admit I was hoping for something more like, uh, Termion Catalot, but this I'll take it. He says, first track sound like the greatest bomb theme that never was. And it's great. Uh, after that, the real standouts for me are Russian roulette, Armageddon and Tempest of Blades. Barring that last one, I definitely prefer them when they're leaning more into the Eurovision sphere than the power metal stuff. I'm a sucker for heavy music with disco drums. Dude, me too. Just as an aside, I, I love that. Uh, he said, that said, I don't hear, I don't really hear the ABBA comparison, to be honest, apart from the fact that they have some great dramatic pop hooks. The Man of War comparison feels much more apt to me. I could see these guys doing great a great cover of Battle Hymn or Demon's Whip. Uh, I'm unlikely ever to listen to this album all the way through again, to be honest, but I will definitely be putting on some of those standout tracks, so thank you. Uh, and, of course, excited about the homework. Uh, let's see. Uh, Andrew said, I was thinking, I bet these guys would be great live. So I had a check, just missed them in London by three days. No, he said, uh, yeah, he said, this was great. Had me smiling ear to ear the whole time, punctuated by the occasional surprised laugh with the keyboard fills. (laughs) I'm not the biggest power metal fan. Okay. In small doses, but albums, but an album's worth gets dull, but there was enough variety on this album to keep me on board. And of course the rasp is always a buy-in for me. Great opener for the volume. Uh, love it. Love that feedback. And that kind of mirrors sort of my, you know, somewhat issues with power metal, right? It's like, uh, okay in small doses, but whole album's worth gets dull. And that was one of the things that surprised me so much about Battle Beast was that they really, uh, they really do pull me in for the whole album. David said, great to have Tio back for another volume and great to have a Battle Beast episode. I first encountered this album shortly after its release on the recommendation of a certain B. Latendry and loved it from the beginning. <laughs> ABBA, Jim Steinman, and rock musical elements wrapped up in a joyously epic metal package. Brilliant. Nora is such a force of nature. I love her delivery throughout. Drove my wife nuts for several weeks by turning to her suddenly at random moments and singing, marionettes are dancing. <laughs> <laughs> That is such a great visual. Uh, could be the reference uh, to Sky to Fall uh, in the second track, Master of Illusion, but I found myself thinking, just go ahead and commission them now to do a theme for the next Bond movie. Yeah, uh, that that came up multiple times, yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah uh, I could think of a few bands whose music and delivery would make a better... Uh, 
I can think of few bands whose music and delivery would make a better fit. Also, very excited for the homework. Uh, let's see. There was one that did not like. I want to scroll back. Oh, Craig said Jesus wept. <laughs> that was the most painful episode that I've listened to. Any other podcast that would have turned off after the opening track, but as Tio is one of my favorite podcasts uh, and are as rare as white dog shit. I haven't heard that one. That's a good one. Uh, I wasn't going to tap out. Halloween were my favorite band at school, so I was hoping maybe there might be a leaning toward their vibe, as it was nothing more... uh, Alas, it was nothing more than a circus of doom. On the bright side, (laughs) I verbally expressed my joy when Anthony revealed the homework. I cannot wait. So uh, even for those who didn't necessarily click with this album, seems like the episode uh, they enjoyed, and also very, very, very excited, almost universally. Yeah. I don't remember seeing any comments where people were like, oh, I'm not that thrilled about um, that. I think everybody's pretty stoked for this. I'm just skimming through to see. Well, while you do, uh, I'll just say, just going back to the point about a whole album's worth of power metal being dull. Like I sympathize. You know, I've had the same reaction to some power metal albums and bands when I've been kind of seeking them out. But I think that I think the Battle Beast album shows that it doesn't have to be. You know, it doesn't have to be dull. It doesn't have to be that way if there is that variety uh, along with strong songwriting. You know, you can have a whole album that isn't dull to listen to. It just takes, you know, a little bit extra, a little bit more effort. Yep. Uh, I got three last uh, positive ones to end out on. Michael said, I went into this album expecting not to like it. After the first playthrough, I thought I did not like it. Then a couple of days later, I was humming along to Eye of the Storm. I couldn't forget that song. I've played through the album about 30 times since then. So many catchy songs on the album. I think it's the first time in T.O. history I've changed my mind after the first listen. So thank you for this pick. Uh, Hamish said, uh, I'm into Bay Area thrash and proggy stuff like Genesis. Yes, Rush and the Canadian prog thrashers propagandy. Uh, Did I think I would like this album? No, not at all. What what have I been listening to since you dropped this episode? Battle Beast. Thank you, T.O. Gentlemen. This album is great, and I'm really <laughs> liking the more commercial Hollywood album, too. Nora is phenomenal. Uh, and the lead guitarist is ripping. Pinky said, late to the party, as is my way. Another banger. The whole time I had the feeling of where have you been all my life. So catchy, had me tapping along at every song. Track two made me think of a game tune or anime theme, so now I want to go watch some anime, but I waited to finish the episode first. They did also talk about the news that we uh, talked about last time about Bandcamp. They said, deeply frustrating, feels like much of the good creative stuff is being strangled, and then they finished with, now please excuse me while I go buy this album. So we got another sale out of Pinky that time around, and I think That's the correct response. that is... <laughs> All I'm going to jump into this one, but tons of great discussion on here. Most of it was either, you know, this didn't click with me at all, or it won me over over the course of the of the album and multiple listens. So, yeah, yeah. Battle Beast, well-received for the first pick. And like I said, universal excitement for the homework. Yeah, so let's talk about that universal uh, you know, approval and excitement, because I think that's one of the things that's so remarkable about System of a Down. And it's possibly just because it's often said of System of a Down that they just do not sound like anybody else. You know, a combination of Serge's voice uh, and the the way they write and play music, they simply, you, you cannot mistake a System song 
before anybody else and nobody else sounds like them even people who might have attempted it um and maybe that's why you know because they're kind of even though they were lumped in with the new metal movement when they first started, you know, they're clearly very different to a lot of new metal bands. And like I say, don't sound really like any of them. So maybe because they're out on their own and they're actually almost like their own little subgenre, you know, a one band subgenre, maybe that's part of how they can have this almost universal appeal across metalheads. You know, as, as we said, they were, for people who weren't around 20 years ago, like, trust us, System of Noun were huge. Like Pantera level, huge. Yeah. I remember seeing that. I think the only time I ever saw them live was at OzFest. But it was, they did multiple OzFests, I believe. I, I meant to go back and look at the exact um, I think so, lineup yeah. that yeah. I saw them with. But when I did see them, it was, I think, post this album. And they were just immense at that point in time. And to your point, I mean, that, that, and I made that note like several times throughout my notes in listening to this stuff is they do have such a unique sound that it's not something you can draw an immediate, in, at least for me, like connection to, right? And so much so that when any other band even flirts with the type of sound that they have, you immediately feel like, oh, they're, they're trying to sound like System of a Down. And it, it reminded me of, there's the first track, I think, on the new Avenged Sevenfold album, where they do they try to do a little System of a Down thing. And that's immediately what I thought of. Huh. I was just like, oh, this is their attempt to sound like System of a Down, because they have such a signature sound that is kind of hard to de- like describe. It's really hard to and, describe. <laughs> and like the energy of the band, I, I think... I think where I settled on this is like the energy of the band and just the whole vibe of the band is to like unsettle you. Right? It's like there it provokes emotion and there's some deeply emotional songs on this album and it provoke it it provokes almost a physical response from you. Mm. And the way each song plays out, it's it, there's a very manic quality to a lot of their music and a very sort of keep you on your heels twists and turns it's a roller coaster like yeah. it, it it feels like a roller coaster a lot of time when you're listening to their songs and so i feel like if you kind of buckle in for the ride and look at it as a whole it's so it's such a great ride but it's also one of those bands where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts yes you know what i mean when you kind of break out any one element of the band but when you put it all together it is a force of nature yeah manic and unpredictable is yes. i mean you say it's a roller coaster every song is a roller coaster and every song is totally unpredictable there is you know there are certain bands and they're not bad bands not knocking them at all you know bands like motorhead that i love where you listen to a song and you can kind of guess what's going to come next totally you know you can go oh okay that's the end of the verse here comes the chorus you know that sort of thing here comes the guitar solo you cannot do that with any system of a down song, when you hear it for the first time, you you just have no idea what is going to happen, <laughs> and that's really yeah. It's exciting, but it's so unusual and so rare, and it requires an investment of your focus and energy in a way that yeah. like it engages you. This is where, not background like, th- music. This is. No, I was just going to say that, dude. Yeah. This is not background music, and um, so much so that. When they do something that feels a little more traditional, that's the exception to the rule. Yes. And you're you're and and by the time they do that, you're not expecting that. 
Right. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, even that was, they did follow a little bit more traditional structure there. Interesting, because that's so not what they do. Um, yeah, it requires engagement, I think, to really to listen to this band and, and kind of hear what they're doing. But like, I mean, so many other, like any album, right? Repeated listens offer up a lot of additional pieces that you may not have noticed because of the manic and unpredictable nature. And your brain is always trying to follow along. And your brain is trying to find the the sort of place where it all clicks together that you could be missing some of the little things that they're doing in the layers or in the background or a string here or a keyboard here or something like that because most of your focus is on following trying to figure out where they're going with you know with this particular song or or uh with this particular section so um yeah super fun band to dig into and something you just said there actually yeah so that's just made me think um i mean you're absolutely right listening to it once you once you get familiar with an out with the album like any album as you say you know you can kind of start to pull out background sounds other instrumentation that you may not have noticed the first time around that kind of thing but you also start to realize what great musicians they are like yes. if this is the sort of thing and you know what came to mind primus that's a really interesting because primus is a band great comparison made of fantastic musicians who the first time you listen to you think my god this is terrible <laughs> like what are they doing it's just it's so chaotic and you're like what is going on here and then once you have that familiarity you think oh wait a second no actually they're brilliant my god they're all incredibly talented musicians and i kind of feel that way about system of a down i hadn't thought of i literally just thought of that as you said it and i was thinking yeah that's a bit like how i felt with when i first time i listened to primus and it's exactly like that the first time you hear system of a down it's so chaotic a bit like slipknot actually that's another comparison and obviously they were compared to slipknot a lot they toured with slipknot they were friends with slipknot you know there's a lot of comparisons and parallels there to be made but it's a similar kind of thing where the, the stuff is so chaotic, or the early stuff anyway, is so chaotic that you're like, what is going on here? Can these guys actually play yeah. their instruments? And then you realize, oh, actually, yeah, not only can they play, but they play really, really well. And yeah, and just the same with these on guys. On top of that, while the band has its own sort of very unique signature sound, each of these musician, musicians also has a very sort of unique style of playing. Yeah, true. Um, and just how they approach their instrument, how they, it, it, it's, it's really, there's no shortage of things to dig into with well, them. And what you just talked about was something that Rick Rubin, who uh, was a co-producer on this record and was. But and, he basically discovered them. I mean, Rubin saw them yeah. playing the Viper Lounge, if that's what it's called, uh, in L.A., because uh, they were already sort of like, you know, a kind of big fish in a small pond, a big hit in the LA scene, saw them playing and were just like, this is amazing. I've got to sign these guys. Well, and he basically was laughing out loud when he was listening to them for the first time because he was like, what the hell is this? But what we were just and, talking about, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, exactly. And he was, and he, but it was the energy and it was like, he was fascinated by them because they just didn't fit any, uh, they didn't fit the landscape at all of what you know what you expected metal to be and and stuff like that and so um i'm on a big rick rubin kick right now i'm I'm reading his uh his autobiography which is like a spiritual guide he he reminds me a lot of uh david lynch 
and yeah, just in the way that he thinks of... about creativity and yeah. uh and stuff like that and it's so funny because if you go back and watch like videos of them making this album he's like He's like the most chill he's guy. He's the Zen master, yeah. Oh yeah. my god, dude. There, but like every picture you see of him, he's like belly sticking out, slouched down in his chair, just like observing. Like just exper- just like letting it wash over him. Like he it's it, it's so funny when you go back and look at those videos, but he's the same now. He just did uh I don't think it was he just did it, but there was a recent podcast episode um that i'll probably reference a couple couple quotes from called the broken record podcast this was two years ago where uh rick rubin interviewed Serge, and they talked about toxicity and they talked about activism and they talked about a whole bunch of other stuff on there but what a great interview because what struck me about Serge, not having watched a lot of interviews with this band until kind of going and getting prepared for this episode was how different his you know non-stage personality is you know you you just associate him with the with the manic wild-eyed frontman the manic wild-eyed in you know just uh using every fiber of his being in his vocals and things like that and then getting him and rick rubin in a room it's like an asmr podcast (laughs) um (laughs) where it's just like they're both like super uh polite and give each other space and stuff like that it's just so interesting to hear and like uh so you absolutely go and uh and listen to that interview but yeah that's where i think rick was talking about the first time that he had sort of uh seen them and and what you know what his first impression was and stuff like that but then i just thought to myself of like who better to work with them yeah than well, Rick Rubin, dude. Especially when like, they're having fist fights in the studio. That's the other thing. Absolutely. Yeah. But like a guy who's not going to do anything other than pull out the best of them. Yeah. As opposed to trying to make them something that they're not. It, yes. Right? Exactly. And Rubin's and really like good at that. He's yeah. your dude. Like, he's your guy uh, for that. Because I can't imagine they would have survived the traditional, like... A regular producer, no. no. A regular producer. You, I just can't can you even imagine, imagine them what with that Bob would... Rock or somebody like that. Exactly. Oh my god, dude. Yes. <laughs> then what a perfect example of like the opposite of uh holy crap, yes. The, imagine them with Bob Rock. That's amazing. Um just, and this that would album, not be dude, a good time for anyone. <laughs> oh my god, no, not be a good time. The great documentary would have came out of it though, that's for sure. Um, if he ever wants to work on a sequel, it would be pulling these guys together in a sequel to some kind of monster. It would be pulling these guys together for their reunion album. Um, so obviously you can't talk about this album without talking about the fact that it came out the week before nine 11. Well, before, before um, we get to that, let's talk a bit more about the band in general. Oh yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Just because partly because I'm curious to hear, because again, we, we said like they were huge and they blew up really quickly. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they had been around for a few years, but this was only their second album. And they went from the first album was kind of a hit within the metal community. Uh, you know, or not a hit, I should say it was popular you know, within the metal community. But then this second album, like this was mainstream big, you know, maybe not quite black album level, but it wasn't that far off. It was huge uh, uh, and happened really quickly, partly because of notoriety over 9-11 and stuff, which we'll get into later. But what I'm curious about is where we both heard them first. Um, yeah. Because the the truth is that I actually don't remember. Like, I, I had a lot of friends uh, 
I still have a lot of friends who live in Los Angeles, who live and work in Los Angeles. And I think that that's probably where I first became aware of them because they were big in the LA scene, you know, which has, as we know, you know, a a big sort of local music scene. And I, I think it was probably one of those friends in LA who said, who just mentioned them. And I was like, who's that? And then they would have told me about them. But I, I'm, that's honestly, that's sort of retrospective speculation because I genuinely don't actually remember, which is crazy considering that I did, you know, I have their albums. I went on to like them quite a bit. And yet I don't remember where I first heard them. So I remember my first memory of like listening to them and having a conversation about their music. I'm sure I saw them on MTV at some point in time because MTV was just a staple when it was still playing music in, in whatever, wherever I was living, I was, there was always MTV on in the background, but I distinctly remember, um, I've talked about before how I used to work in group homes when I first got out of college. And, uh, there was, uh, one of the kids at the group home that I worked at, um, she was a big metal fan. And so we often talked about music and, and stuff like that. And she was a huge fan of their first album. And so I just remember talking with her about that and listening to that first album because she was always listening to it um, at the program. And so that's what that was my first memory of System of a Down. But I didn't get into that first album in the way that I got into this one. Right. I mean, it, this was the album for me that got me into. And then for me, it was the it was their peak and the rest of their stuff after this was kind of more of a mixed bag for me i think because I, I just feel like this is their most complete yeah um album but yeah that was my first memory of that was was having that conversation with um one of the kids at the program about this band and how much they absolutely adored this band and uh yeah well you said uh, you said that earlier that this feels like a complete album and, and i agree i mean that's why i chose this particular album because i think that it's just more consistent all the way through uh, like yep. I do like their first album and it's got some great songs on it, uh, especially in the first half of that album. But I think that, uh, I, I think toxicity has well, more, a higher baseline. Like yeah. it's got, it's got, you know, as many good songs, maybe more good songs, but the baseline, even the songs that aren't the greatest on the album, I think are just better quality than the yeah. poor songs on the first album the first album Agreed. kind of runs out of steam towards the end i think um right whereas this one has maybe one of the best you know we'll talk r- about it when r- we yeah, get there yeah. but uh <laughs> yeah. but yes uh and i also think thematically there's more consistency in this album there are a couple of exceptions but i think there are some themes that run through this album that um are not as scattered yeah. as some of their other stuff um, but, but I, I was always, again, just to go back to it, I was always amazed that a band this heavy, because they are heavy, there's no question about that. This is a yep. really, really heavy band. This whole album is tuned to drop C, apparently, uh, you know, and they take full advantage of that. But a band this heavy and this weird, like that just sounds this weird, I was always amazed that they could have this enormous mainstream success and they could go, yeah, multi-platinum and cause riots in LA because, you know, because they barred from doing a free concert and that sort of thing. Just absolutely crazy. People went nuts for this band, uh, you know, first in LA, but then all over, well, certainly America and Europe. Um, And yet they are so strange. So I always just, I I never quite understood it. I still don't really understand it. But don't they also just tap into like the most 
elemental roots of especially heavy music of like rebellion true right? yeah and true. That, and well, that, anti-authoritarianism especially <clears throat> anti-authoritarian um the cathartic release that this music creates right and just the the capturing of i think especially for like teenagers the the volatility of the energy of their music is very identifiable to mm, yes. you know kids who are at that point in their lives you know what i mean um and then i think it comes back around to like old people like us now who are you know listening to it and <laughs> it it sort of reignites the fire you know what i mean in some ways around um it, it, it now it's capturing the exhaustion and the frustration of um you know, having lived with so many things happening around us for so many years now and things like that. True. Whereas then it's like, it's, so I, I do, I feel like they're that energy that they bring, um, even without understanding the lyrics or even without necessarily being a huge fan of that particular genre of music, like it just speaks to your core. And, um, yeah. And so, although like they didn't have it easy breaking into the industry because like in those, you know, Rick Rubin interviews and stuff like that, they toured with Slayer. Oh yeah, and Slayer yeah. fans are not very Slayer. welcoming. They're huge Slayer fans. Yeah. That's why. A hundred percent, especially uh, Darren. And so, um, but Slayer fans are very. Uh, I-, I saw somebody. I would, I would say Slayer fans often have a fixed mindset about what <laughs> heavy music should be. That's a very polite and, way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, they are. That's a tough crowd. I, I saw somebody to in a retrospective pointing that out yeah basically saying like you know opening opening for slayer and surviving the experience is impressive because yeah oh it's battle tested yeah. apps 100 <laughs> percent. and so like if that if if you approach it like that right if you approach it of like you're uh and i think back to the same thing with alice and chains opening for the clash of the titans right, tour like, right they're Where not they gonna like us but maybe we can get them yep. to respect us <laughs> well right and especially like if we can if we can just hang in there man if we can get through this and we can withstand this, then we can deal with anything Yeah, and we'll have built up some awareness. And so the more that we continue to build our own, you know, uh, legacy, yeah. we will have a chance. You're not going to win them over on the first attempt. Yeah. Forged and so, in the fire. But if you, exactly. But if you can make it through, then there, there's almost a begrudging respect that comes out of that of like, okay, all right, well maybe we'll see you around next time on tour then. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and then by the time they're you know playing Ozfest, that's they're that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. 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 They're there. That that, um, that same retrospective review actually, uh, it was um, I think it was the same one anyway. It was a retrospective review on Pitchfork's website uh, about this album, and it described Serge's vocals as quote wild and flexible, which I thought was a really a really good way of describing his you know his vocals and his approach. Um, and then the other thing that I just wanted to, before we get onto the album, mention was, uh, and th- maybe this is in his book, actually, I'm not sure, but I saw Rick Rubin quoted retrospectively talking about the band as saying, they clearly didn't fit, but they were so good that they transcended not fitting. And I think yeah. that, again, is a really great way to look at System of a Down as a whole. Absolutely. And I think that speaks to the energy, right? Like, you, like there's something about them that just carries it through yeah. and it's the whole, like the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. Right. It's like it, there is an electricity to this band that they are anything but boring. Yes. Right. You, it's something yeah. you, you, you would not 
often hear lobbied at them is that they are a boring band to listen to because they require your attention. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of great, I think that might come up in the podcast interview as well, but there's also a great, um, article on the ringer called, uh, the truth does not recognize retreat, the oral history of system of a downs toxicity. And that's a great, Oh, that may have been uh, where I saw it actually. Yeah. Yeah, that's a. There's so so much good stuff. Rick Rubin's part of that interview as well. So, but they're all there, um, kind of talking about it. So, there's a lot of good stuff that that came out of that. Um, yeah, I did read then, that. Yeah, as I say that. Much so, I mean, just so to go back real quick to the whole, um, you know, landscape at the time. So, the album comes out. It's number one in the yep on the on the charts when nine eleven happens, and then which was following, it had only been out a week. It came out literally was yeah. released one week before they 9/11. found out. Uh, I believe they found out that day yeah. that they were number one. Yep, the same day the, on nine eleven they found that out, and then so obviously nine eleven happens, and I believe it was the next day where Serge wrote a blog on the System of a Down website called I want to say it was Understanding Oil. That's right. Yep. And it was his attempt to sort of contextualize maybe some of the driving forces, you know, and and historically some of the driving forces of why something like this could ever happen. And that got sort of cherry-picked in the worst way by radio stations, by—and this was at a time where music was being pulled from radio stations based on— I mean, it reminded well, me of the inclu- PMRC. Including like it theirs. reminded me of, yeah, inclu- yes, they were one of the songs. It was, um, it was, was the, it the Clear Clear Channel, wasn't it? Clear Radio. It was Clear Channel, yeah. and I what what song was it? Was it? It was Toxicity. It, oh, it was it, Toxicity because okay. it's oh, no 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 sorry no Chop Suey because Chop Suey's got that's what it was Chop Suey because it was because uh, uh, it talks about suicide suicide yeah, yeah. yep uh, yes and so but the backlash on against that particular. Uh, blog post and if you you can go read on the internet archive and stuff like that there's copies of it still kind of out there it wasn't uh i mean you you read through the blog post and he was trying to contextualize like here's the history of foreign policy and here's the dependence of the country on oil and all this kind of stuff and you know basically the conclusion of the blog post was like you have to stop the cycle of violence first and you have to lessen the country's dependence on oil um because those are things that are that are uh, underlying issues with um y- you know w- when something like this happens right and so that was his takeaway from kind of the situation and and i mean you should read it i don't want to misquote any of it but uh the backlash was huge and he actually went on the howard stern show yeah because howard stern was outraged by the secondhand version of that blog post that he had heard about and so Rick Rubin actually like intervened and spoke to Stern before Serge went on the show to basically say like this guy's a good guy like he's that you know he means well and and you know give him an opportunity to but if you hear the the it's such an uncomfortable interview and he Serge sounds so um well he sounds like he sounds in real life which is very different than his on stage yeah. persona yeah. right which is very sort of mild-mannered and um polite and really uh just 
wanting to have a, a conversation and stuff like that. And so, but to have him be on the Howard Stern show and have Stern sort of firing questions at him and Robin, you know, kind of providing commentary along alongside of it and him trying to kind of explain, you know, where he was coming from and also to make sure that people don't misunderstand what it was that he was trying to say and all that kind of stuff. It's a tough listen. That's on YouTube. You can go listen to the to the Howard Stern interview, but they talk about it in the Rick Rubin podcast episode as well. So yeah, and the band was not happy with him. No, about because that. he did it without telling the band. And it's... Which... It, sorry, go on. That's a theme, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, 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 you know, I think that when you look at their, uh, you know, because you can't talk about this band without talking about, like, why are they not making new music? Um, I think they're, you know, the thing that connects them all is being Armenian. Well, that's what and, I was just going to go into. So it's yeah. important just to keep on the 9-11 thing for a second. It's important for, for people who don't realize to understand that these guys are all uh, descendants of a, a diaspora. You know, there was a genocide in Armenia about 100 years ago, uh, perpetrated by the Turks, uh, which the Turks still won't admit, or the, you know, the Turkish officials, I should say, still won't admit actually happened. They still, not, not just deny responsibility, they deny that it ever even happened. You know, it's like Holocaust denial or something. Um, and all of these guys' families are, I mean, most Armenians in the world today are obviously survivors of that genocide and the diaspora that it uh, that resulted, you know, after it, people escaping the genocide. Serge Tankian was actually born in Beirut. Uh, he like he's not he's an American citizen now. He moved there when he was young, but he wasn't born in America. You know, he was born now Beirut and the Caucasus and uh, that whole area. You know, Georgia and Azerbaijan and places like that. They are not the Middle East, but they are pretty close to the Middle East. Uh, you know, they are not a million miles away, and so. You know, those uh, listeners in America will just have to trust me when you are, you know, being a European, uh, when you are close to countries like that, you do have more understanding of what is going on. You know, you have more political awareness of the especially the effects of things like foreign activity, you know, American uh, activity in those areas and stuff. You just you can't avoid it. And so I say all this to kind of give some background as to why Serge felt the need to write this essay and the fact that frankly he's right you know that's the other thing and you know with the with the the benefit of distance of a couple of decades now since 9-11 we can kind of look back and say that and he wasn't he wasn't wrong you know I mean people could see that at the time but it's easier I think to look at it now and you know with uh the knowledge of everything that's happened in the couple of decades since in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran. And you go like, actually, yeah, he's absolutely right. Nothing he said was wrong. It's just that it was so badly timed. <laughs> it yeah. was so against and, and the national to mood that point, at that time that, yeah, of course, like if you go backlash. back and read, if you go back and read the, the essay that he wrote, like it's, it's not super long and it's not anything that you'd even, you know, really think is controversial not today. now no exactly you know, when yeah. you, absolutely but to your point like in that moment and i think that's where the band was coming from too with him of like you know and and he said and there is a quote that i want to uh sort of pull up because i think it speaks to the relationship that also kind of leads to them not being as active today um you know the, the, uh, so there's a, a moment i think it's in this uh 
podcast where he you know he talks about like the band was basically asking him if they were if they're trying to get them yeah are you trying to get us killed yeah yeah and he said but it's the truth and they're like so what yeah what are you doing (laughs) like you're you're a smart guy like what are you what are you doing and he said i was naive to think the truth being the truth was the most important thing and i'm still that naive and so basically he was just saying like that's always been his kind of north star and that is something that has never changed for him and i think when you see what he's done outside of music and what he continues to do today like that that's accurate right and so but i think it it hits home that a lot of the stuff that surge was singing about especially around american politics in their lyrics was definitely not something that all of his bandmates were on board with at any given time yeah and i think that especially nowadays when you look at there's plenty of stories out there about the the differing uh thoughts on american politics between the band members and and how different they are well and especially and so, surge and darren i gather I, yes. I i saw a line again i can't remember where but yeah in one of those retrospectives from darren basically saying like you know surge and i there are many, many places politically where we do not see eye to eye. And they're still friends, or so they claim. You know, they all claim that they still love one another, they still talk to one another. Outside of the band, it's fine. But within the context of the band, which inevitably brings with it power dynamics, as any, you know, collaborative creative totally. act does, they just can't they can't get along anymore. Yeah, and John Dolman as well, who I believe is his brother-in-law. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. They have extremely opposite political views when it comes to American politics. And, um, you know, they but they both have kind of talked about, like, is it frustrating being on the politically opposite side to your own drummer and your brother-in-law, Serge was saying? He's like, yeah, of course it's frustrating, but that's having to do with American politics. When it comes to Armenian issues, we're on the same exact page. And so, um, yeah. So just like understanding that you have Serge who has become the face of this band, who is very activism oriented and politically outspoken in as American politics as well. And that's not always what the band members are necessarily looking to be a part of, because you have Darren who wants to who grew up idolizing Slayer and all these other bands, right? And and wants to be a, a band wants to you know wants to be uh wants to be a popular band and so even what they're looking to get out of the band at any given time is not necessarily a lot and that's not unique to system of a down obviously no. but um you know just interesting to see to those like, tensions absolutely and and what's interesting about that is like and look at how their music is this sort of converging forces sometimes in opposition very unpredictable, very volatile. There's a volatile energy to their music that I think mirrors kind of the dynamics of the band. Yep. I, and so, you know, it's just it, it's just super interesting to dig into all of that stuff. But yeah, the time that this came out, the landscape at the time, the backlash to that particular piece of it, and then the fact that it that it didn't ultimately that backlash did not stop this record from being an absolute monster success no well and if anything um, it may have helped you know part of the some of some of the i think in that oral history article actually um there are one or two people like you know sort of managers and label people who point out that yeah for whatever reason actually all it did was increase awareness of the band and uh and just you know increase their sales 
It, so yeah. it, it really did the I mean, it went no six times way. platinum. Yeah. So uh, it's obviously one of the best-selling records ever. Yeah, which is, yeah, that's just crazy. Again, for a record this <laughs> this heavy and this madcap uh, to sell that many copies is just nuts. But I think that's, that's a really good observation you made there that, yeah, the volatility of the music actually kind of reflects the volatility of the band. Uh, and so, yeah, it's perhaps it was inevitable that a band like this could not survive much longer. Uh, Shavo, the bassist, made a point in one article that I read where he said, like, we only recorded three times and we got five albums out of that. (laughs) Or was it even six albums out of it? They Um, had over 30 songs for this album. Yeah. Uh, Well, they recorded, they they wrote even more. So by all accounts, they wrote more than 40 songs for this album. They recorded around 30 of them, and then they whittled that down to the 14 that are on this album. The others were leaked. That's what led to the Steal This Album uh, recording. And then they recorded the, um, or release, I should say, and then they recorded Hypnotize and Mesmerize, uh, together you know that was one session where they recorded both albums and then released them separately so yeah they haven't actually they didn't go into the studio together all that often it's kind of crazy to think that they put out as many records as they did right and to go back to the production thing i mean again when you think about rick rubin and just and obviously you know what they put into this album all together to be able to capture that energy oh yeah and have it come through in the music. I mean, how often do we see, you know, albums where the production does not capture well the actual energy of the band? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think an important difference, actually, between the first album and this one, because Rick Rubin produced the first album as well. He was the guy who signed them to the label, wanted to produce them, did a great job, even on that first record of, as you say, sort of pulling out what was in them rather than trying to impose his own vision. But the crucial difference between that first album and this one was that this one is mixed by Andy Wallace. And that I think makes a hell of a difference because Andy Wallace, you know, he's a kind of legendary engineer and producer um, of metal records, you know, was involved with Pantera, I believe Uh, certainly white zombie, I think. Uh, And, and many, many other, you know, really kind of heavy sounding bands in the nineties. And so if anybody knows how to make this band, sound their best purely in sonic terms not necessarily in terms of helping with the songwriting and stuff as you know rubens did but just purely in terms of getting that sound onto you know into a mixed form andy wallace is the man no question and so yeah i mean just a a couple of highlights slayer uh the cult (laughs) sepultura nirvana white zombie rage against the machine on their first album um, it's probably Sepultura I was thinking of um, when I said um, Pantera, actually. But yeah, yeah, just incredibly heavy bands. Like the man knows how to how to record heavy music. <laughs> and so, yeah, as I say, I really think that makes a big difference between the first and the second one. And it's one of the reasons why this album sounds so, so very heavy, even to this day. Yeah, it is really there's there's a lot of good stuff in this album as far as like little little uh just little elements of different songs including one thing that I had not even noticed until until I listened to it again this morning before we recorded. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I guess then it's time to 
get into the song. So we'll just what what haven't we done yet? Oh, so it was recorded in two thousand one, released in two thousand one, as we said. There are fourteen songs on the album. Technically fifteen. We're we're going to talk about fifteen because one of them's a hidden track. But obviously that means yep. that officially there's only fourteen songs, forty four minutes long, as we said, produced by Rick Rubin, uh, mixed by Andy Wallace. You know, I mean that alone is enough just in terms of production terms to get me to give an album any any album a try um and yeah and it was i think i think it remains their commercially their most commercially successful album as well i'm pretty sure this is their best selling i didn't look but i i can't imagine it's not yeah it's it's, it would be um, i would be amazed if any of their albums sold more than this and part of that is down to that notoriety that came about from uh post 9-11 so should we get into it yeah let's do it all right let us start with the opener track one prison song opener for this album i mean just the fact that that first done and everything drops out yep like right in the beginning it just punches you in the mouth right when it starts and then to have surge whisper they're trying to build a prison like right off the bat you're in like this is this is such a great opening track like i feel like it 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 Again, like any great opening track should, this is what you're in for. And they they don't waste any time getting into it, like, right off the bat. Yeah, it absolutely sets out the stall. Yeah, I've got the same thing in my notes, that we talk all the time about how opening songs should make a statement about what you're, what you're about to let yourself in for. Uh, and this absolutely does it. I mean, and not just, the op- not just the first few bars, but all the way through. You know, it has the, the chaos, the variety... The time signature Dude, the changes, baseline. the heaviness that you'll find throughout the whole album. Yeah, a great baseline as well. Yeah, but I, I made a note as well. Like, think about what you mentioned: the, the the confidence that it takes to start an album playing. You play one chord, one note. Yep. And then there's three seconds of silence. Three seconds of silence. Can you imagine how many people put that on and went, "Wait, is, is it broken?" Dude, <laughs> it, it goes back to what I said before. Like. They they basically grabbed you by the shirt collar and pulled you in, and he freaking whispered that in your yeah. face, dude. They're like, "You better freaking lock in and listen." And that's what I love about it is it like that that one chord, that one 
you know, and then the three seconds of silence is the equivalent of just punching you right in the mouth. Like you listen up because and get ready. Like it, it, it is such a like grab your attention moment of like you're locked in from that point forward. Yeah. And then when the riff does kick in, it is a hell of a riff. That is a great, incredible, great opening riff. That da 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 da. Uh, just yeah, brilliant. Even the, and the breakdown. I mean, we talked about how <laughs> I mentioned that you know when they started, they were lumped in with the new metal crowd. They never really belonged, and it was clear that they didn't really want to be lumped in with all those other bands. Uh, but they do have breakdowns, and they are really, really good breakdowns. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, like like hardcore style breakdowns, yeah. like just. Uh, absolute crushers. And you can immediately, if you've never heard them before, you can immediately picture in your head what the live show looks like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where you're just like, oh, man, people must lose their freaking mind right here. And, uh, but again, and you also get in this song, like, how Serge and Darren, their lyrical partnership, I mean, their vocal partnership, you know what I mean? In well, terms both, of because Darren does write a lot of the lyrics as well. Well, yes, absolutely. But, but also like for, for emphasis, for exclamation, uh, some of it melodic, some of it, uh, completely contrasting some of it where Darren is, uh, you know, doing his growly, screamy vocals to emphasize a particular point, um, Again, in the chorus, like specifically on the lines for you to and me to live in, for you and me. That's down, um, isn't just it? Yeah. yeah, just reinforcing that. Um, what, you and know, the opening growl, piece of it. actually, when they're building up to the opening riff, that's, yes. that's Darren Which, doing the growl, isn't it? I think so, yeah. And, and But that, like, that's almost like more traditional metal stuff, but the way they use it is very different than, because, you know, a lot yeah. of bands will have, like, clean sung verse uh growly vocals right growly chorus, or, or, yeah, you know yeah. that or the opposite of that yeah. right like it's very um there's a time for this and there's a time for this and with system of a down it's like no, <laughs> no. it's all it's all time for this yeah, it's like we'll, like we'll, we'll tell you we'll switch in the middle of a line a hundred percent they're like we'll, we'll let you know when it's time for that you don't need to worry about that like we'll tell you and so the way they use it and if you like the if you listen multiple times to these albums and you just just take one listen where you go through the whole album and you just listen to that dynamic between the two of them. And you listen to, in each song how they're using that and how they're uh, using it to emphasize particular words or particular notes or particular whatever. Like That is the unseen instrument of this band is the dynamic between the two of those melodically and also like in terms of harsh and clean. Yeah. Just amazing. And, and amazing also, stuff. And also the dynamic that Serge has with himself. Yes. Between his own harsh and clean vocals, which again, like he'll switch in the middle of a line and does not change in ways that you might expect, you know, in ways that are predictable or traditional to heavy music. Uh, and he, the ease with which he slips in and out of his growl and clean yes. vocals is remarkable. Like the agility that he has with his voice. And you I mean, you can hear it in this song, but you can hear it throughout the whole album on practically every Absolutely. song. It's quite amazing, especially considering that he wasn't even originally a singer. Uh, in their previous band, I believe he was just a keyboardist and didn't sing. Keyboard. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it all, it all lends to this idea of like, it, it's a tightrope. It always feels yeah. like they're on a tightrope. You know, like it could, they could fall off at any time. And 
Um, and that set, that's that sense of unease. Like you don't know where, where this is going, <laughs> but amazingly, especially on this album, I think it always goes somewhere that rewards. Oh, it, it's somewhere like, musically. It, it, it always it, goes somewhere good. It, absolutely. It always goes somewhere good. And so, um, but like to go back to the baseline, like that sort of creeping baseline around two thirty, when they're talking about sort of the, the shady dealings of governments and stuff mm-hmm. like that, it's like the curtains being pulled back on something you're not supposed to know. And the baseline is just this very sort of like secret behind the scenes, you know, <laughs> creeping around sort of thing. Like even those types of things, just like lyrically and musically at the same time, how the music will uh, conjure a vision of that that represents a particular passage in the lyrics or something it's especially for a band that has a lot of like throwaway lyrics too there are so many times where they zoom in and it's like no but listen to this yeah like this part is the pay attention to this part and it's all in service to the song you know which all in service uh, again we've talked about before with some bands you know the best bands are those where each musician is doing what they need to do to make the song better rather than just worrying about how loud their own part is or whether they get to show off their virtuosity. I mean, you talk about the bass, Shavo, the bassist again, wasn't originally a bassist. He's a guitar player. Uh, I saw an interview with him where he said, like, I still own more guitars than basses. Um, and he approaches the bass like a guitar player, but he switched to it because they didn't need another guitarist. They did need a bass player. They tried auditioning people. It wasn't working. And he said, fuck it. What if I just get a bass? Uh, and lo and behold, now you have one of the, you know, I I don't know. I was going to say one of the greatest basses in metal. Maybe that's overstating it a little, but he is really fucking good. You know, and as a songwriter, as a bassist songwriter, he's really good. Totally. And what he's doing in many of these songs is a lot, a lot more is required of him than yes. in a lot of traditional metal songs. Yeah, and so, it, it, because you can't have, the bass can't be the weak link in this high wire act right. that we're listening yeah. to. Like, it Everybody's can't, you're either all game. in, yeah. yeah, you're either all in, or it's going to be very evident who's not. And so, you have to keep up. And in a lot of cases, you're you're the one um, because they play a lot with that. Where bass and drums are all you're hearing right now yep. uh, under the vocals, right? Where a guitar drops out completely, and so it's like I feel like with this band, there's nowhere to hide. Like there's like you're not. Uh, it's all so raw that there's just nowhere to hide, right? And it's not like the it's not like the distortion is washing out anything else. Like it's not even when they're doing their sort of wall of noise, you know, with vocals and you know music pushed to the max. It's like you can still hear every single bit yeah. of what is going on. So there's really nowhere to hide in 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 these songs. Yeah, totally. It's almost it's like people say that about a three piece band. You know, that's the thing about a three yeah. a three piece rock and roll outfit is like you know like Motorhead, Nirvana, whatever. You know, uh, they're great because there is nowhere to hide because every single there's just you can't hide behind anybody because there's only one of each instrument and he, right. even though they're a four piece because Serge isn't playing uh instruments you know when they're performing live there is still only one of each instrument and it definitely has that feel as you say that yeah there's yeah no it's hide and they don't even though they've layer guitars here and there it's not anywhere near to the degree it's again it goes back to what you said it's, it's in service of the song and it doesn't muddy the waters it you know, it's what it needs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Although I did see, uh, and again, it might have been that in that retrospective, but I saw certainly Darren saying that there are times on this album where there are like twenty guitars 
layered <laughs> on top of one another. Interesting. Which is, but you wouldn't know to listen to it. That's the that's the weird thing. They don't, it, as you say, it doesn't sound muddy at any point. So you, you know what else know I just remembered about him too is he plays with a triangle pick, um, and a and a big one. Like I don't know if you if you've seen his. Uh, Sorry, you're talking I mean, they're about, all about for sale. No, no, no. I was talking about uh, Darren. Oh right, no, I haven't um, looked. He's he. It's a, like a freaking big triangle pick that he uses, and I just, and I think he still uses it because I was watching an Ernie Ball uh, video where he was kind of being interviewed about his his uh, playing style. I haven't found any place where he talks about it, but um, he's got a ton of picks that have gone up for sale. He's given out to fans, all that kind of stuff, and things like that. And it's this big triangular <laughs> pick that he uses. And I don't know if that lend I'm sure it lends to the way that he's hitting the strings. It's and, gonna have um, some effect, doesn't it? Yeah. Just kind of their overall sound. I just thought that was interesting. Oh right. Yeah, no, I hadn't looked at that. I'll have to go and look. Um I mean the other thing we should talk about with this opening track is of course is the politics because it is again talking about how the opening track tells you what you're in for with the album. I mean it, it does lyrically as well. You know, this is a very politically charged song. Uh, talking about the sort of, you know, the um, injustices of the U.S. for Mandatory minimum prison system. sentences, man. Mandatory minimum yep, sentences. For minor drug offenses. Yep, yep. Uh, uh, and he says, you know, clearly all research in successful drug policy shows that treatment should be increased and law enforcement decreased while abolishing mandatory minimum sentences. Exactly. Like, it's yeah. pretty clear where, they're, yeah. <laughs> where, he's, where right. they're going that, with this. That, uh, and then they make it clear because that's not even sung. He literally just shouts those lines. So there's yes. no mishearing them or taking them for sort of, I don't know, you know, lyrical fancy or anything like, no, no, this is just a direct statement. Um, and again, that's not, you know, e- even in the late 90s, that was still relatively unusual for a heavy band. You know, we remember bands, well, for any band, we remember bands like Rage Against the Machine and the Dead Kennedys and stuff, partly because they didn't couch their political statements in lyricism. Right. Because they were really, really clear about what their political angles were. Uh, and uh, most bands don't do that. But System of a Down absolutely did, you know. And that's sort of, I think they belong on that same spectrum with those bands for exactly that reason. Because there is never any question about, where, well, I was going to say where they stand, where Surge stands. <laughs> yes, I was just going to say that. Is There's definitely uh, no question about where Surge stands, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, um, but to your point, and that goes back to the whole thing of like nowhere to hide, right? It's like they're not hiding. Yeah, there's no hiding with these <laughs> with these lyrics. Like there's there is definitely lyrics of theirs that are well open to interpretation, and I you know sure. have notes about some of that stuff. But there is also, but not this one. <laughs> um, when they want to be clear about a societal issue that they feel like is going unaddressed or is being addressed in a negative way. They're very clear. Yeah. Yeah. This is not one of those songs. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, it is a great opening song. Absolutely love it. Um, but let's move on to track two then needles. Come out! 
This is an interesting song on many, many levels. Um, one, because it was one of the things that they fought about yep. when they were recording this album. Um, which I'm sure you, you probably have notes on that story as well. But just like the 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 fact that the band uh, didn't want a reference to it, it, them having a tapeworm up, up their, their ass. asses. Yeah, exactly. They were fine with other people having tapeworms in other people's asses, yeah. but not them. Yeah, it was, it uh, originally pulled the tapeworm out of my ass, and... Right, the, and they were like, that's not metal, bro, that's not what we're trying to do, that's not where. That's yeah. not who we're trying to be. <laughs> and uh, and Serge, in the Rick Rubin interview, Serge and Rick have a, a, a good laugh about that, of just how like silly that was at the time, but also like what... Uh, but also quite serious. big argument. Yeah. yeah, very big argument with the band and um, how changing one word, um, even though it, it it's spoken to from a like a first person standpoint multiple times in the song, just that one instance of that word uh, being changed made it all okay for everybody. Yeah, but yeah, it's just <laughs> super interesting to uh, to hear the story behind that, right? Yeah. So this song is about addiction, I believe. Is is that? Uh, I think that's what I saw Shavo say. Uh, yes, I also had a note about that. Which, you know, hence the tapeworm metaphor, I assume. That's why you get that metaphor in there. Um, it, it's another really heavy one. I mean, that kind of goes without Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. It kind of goes without saying for most of the album, really, doesn't it? Um, but it is, yeah, it's another great, you know, riff-heavy and very heavy track. Um, there are two musical bits in this, though, that kind of show their influences and show the diversity of their influences that I really like. And the first is the pre-chorus, when Serge is singing, my tapeworm tells me what to do. And you listen to John's drum fills in that section, and they are very slipknot, like they are very Joey Jordison. Yes, dude. You know, with all the uh, fills and stuff, really just very reminiscent of that, that influence on them. And then the chorus itself, the pull the tapeworm out of your ass. Hey, has yep. th- that the rhythm of that and the hey at the end? That is a very sort of Caucasian feel to that melody. And uh, Caucasian, I mean, as in from the Caucasus, not just white people. Um, right. <laughs> the, the melody and the rhythm and the hey chance at the end, of that punctuated chance at the end of each line. That is very kind of traditional music from that part of the world. Uh, and so you get this. These both of these influences within seconds of one another in the same track, and that is one of the things that I personally love musically about System of a Down is that they pull in all these influences and 100%. somehow meld them all together. And also, this was the song where I heard something that I had not heard previously. Like when when it goes to the you know the kind of breakdown where it gets you know, it gets softer and slower and things like that. And it, where he's saying, you know, pull the tapeworm out of me. Oh yeah. And then everything kind of quiets down a little bit at like one fifty six, He mumbles out of me like really, 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 really quiet. I don't think I'd heard that. Yeah. And I was listening to it. I have, I, I was, uh, 
I have those new head, those heavy headphones, the ones that are made for heavy metal listeners. Did you see? Did you see those? You probably seen them advertised <laughs> on Instagram. No. <laughs> uh, so they have. You'll. I'll send you a link to. I'm sure our listeners know which ones they are. So that was. I got those for Christmas, and uh, listening to music with those. I mean, they're just better headphones than any of the ones that I had before. So that's probably why I don't know that they're special to heavy metal, but that's how they advertise themselves. Um, but in listening to it this morning, I was like, wait a second. Does he say? out of me again and i rewound it and i was like he does and i had never heard that because it's so low and it's like almost it's not even really whispered it's almost like it's just so low that it almost blends into the background i'm gonna have to listen and i was like that's a good example of something that i had not even heard before i also feel like that part of the song sounds like the knight rider theme (laughs) um It just immediately brought the Knight Rider theme into my head when I was uh, listening to it. And uh, I can tell by your laugh, you can at least see the, the vague uh, connection. <laughs> I can, <there>. yeah. <laughs> if it's not one-to-one, it definitely just... I would never have made that connection myself, but I can see it. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't... It's probably because that theme is running in my head 24 hours a day. And why and not? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's always it's just like a river that runs through my mind. And so, uh, yeah, but I was like, oh, that sounds a little Knight Rider-y to me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was that little, like, when he mumbled that, I was like, damn, that is freaking another, how many years later is this? Like 23 20 years, years well, later. 22, yep. yeah, let's call it. Just, yeah. Just heard something new this morning. Yeah. Yeah, although, actually, I, just talking generally about the album, I should say, like, I don't... You know, I like System of a Down, as I've said, you know, I have their albums, but they're not a band that I listen to a huge amount. Um, you know, certainly less now than I used to. And actually, one thing that really struck me, that it had been... Yeah, I mean, I know I chose this album, but I chose it knowing that, you know, I liked it because I'd listened to it a lot in the past. But it had probably been five years or more since I'd given the whole album a a playthrough. And I think one thing that really surprised me when I did, you know, listen to it again all the way through in preparation for this was just how many songs I remembered really well. Like, not just, oh, that sounds vaguely familiar, but like, oh, shit, yeah, I remember practically every bar of this song. Um, Right. Which, again, considering how chaotic and complex some of the arrangements are, that's kind of quite impressive, really, for how how much this album sticks in your brain. If someone had said, write down the titles of all the songs, you'd probably been like, I don't remember every single title. But, like, (laughs) as as you're listening through, you're like, yep. I remember, the, oh yeah, this song rules. Yeah. Oh, yep. No, I remember this song totally. Or yeah, I remember, you know, the chorus, you know, the, you know, so yeah, I'm with you of like, no matter how long you've been away from it, this is an album where, and I think because it's a complete album well, and that it's like, it just clicks and, and you're like, okay, yep. And some of that is down to Ruben. This is one thing that I definitely read uh, when I was reading up about this album was he introduced them to the benefits of overwriting. Yep. of writing way, way more than you need. And then, as a result, you can throw away half an album of the weaker stuff, yep. and all you're left with is the really, really strong stuff. And I think this album is a, a great vindication of that approach, actually. Because it's yeah, almost like def- a great... From a musical standpoint, there's nothing I would uh, take off of this album. Thematically, as we get through it, I think there's a couple yeah, places yeah. <laughs> where it's a little inconsistent. Yeah. But, um, but no, but, musically, but, yeah, it's just, there's nothing you but change. But not musically, yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, let's move on to track three then. Dear Dance. 
Crushing, crushing riff, and then you've got that sort of roller coastery, you know, sliding uh, feel to the verses and stuff like that. This is another one that just like it's two minutes and fifty five seconds. It starts as a crusher, and the subject matter is, uh, you know, it's very like it, it's very clear. Oh, well, yeah. Right? Again, if you want to talk about political statements. You know, this is uh, this track probably isn't as it's a little less direct, I think, than Prison Song, but not by a, a huge amount. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think thematically about like authority and and you know liking to push the week around and stuff like that, and and uh, it, that stuff is very clear. And this is another song where, uh, and this comes up in the discussion between Rick Rubin and uh, Serge, where they talk about here Darren's vocals. Are essentially the authoritarian side right, chanting, right. push the weak around because that's their mission, as opposed to the way that Serge is singing it in calling out What's the authority yeah. for that. Yes. And just the interplay between that and the contrast between that is just one of the ways, like, it, 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 to go back to what we we're saying earlier, of like within each song, they're sort of choosing how do we want to use this incredible dynamic between the two of us to punctuate or emphasize different parts of this song? And it's different for every song. Yeah. 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 And in some cases it's just like, well, in this one, why don't you sing the same melody that I'm singing? Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. And there'll just be two of us singing like a, you know, around the same melody. And then in this one, no, I want you to punctuate, you know, this one, or I'll come in this way, or I'll just, it's just these two words, or whatever. It's like, just how they use that. It's such a great, um, you know, resource for them in any song to, if you if you started and played the whole song exactly the same way it was without that dynamic, and then choosing where to add it, you know, of like, oh, I think we could really put it in here, and we could really, if I do this, it's going to take this to a whole nother level, you know? Yeah, there's no formula to it as, as you said right. they kind of every it's not one way yeah every song they you know make different decisions um also talking about the lyrics and sort of how direct they are i think that's a good because you're right you can read this very easily and very successfully as a diatribe an anti-authoritarian authoritarian diatribe you know about police brutality and that sort of thing uh, and that's absolutely valid and and it is about that but it is also very very specifically about the 2000 the year 2000 uh yeah the protests protests at the democratic national convention in los angeles and that's why you've got mm-hmm. that line in there about the staples center beyond the staples center you can see america um yep but as you say if you don't know that if you don't have that context, it still holds true. Exactly. You can still, yep. you know, it still works as just a general universal aren't the police shits when they break up riots song, um, which, you know, is the true there and universally. 
Well, and again, dude, like the delivery of when he's singing beyond the Staples Center, you can see America with its tired, poor, avenging disgrace. It, underneath that, it's la 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 yeah, la yeah. la 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 la. Like so good, dude. Just like man, it, it again the the, it's satirical. the choices they make. It, it's, yes, yeah, which you know there aren't many satirical metal bands out there. <laughs> and that and that's what but, but that's what we're talking about. Like with, with the baseline or the lyrics or the whatever, it's the way they follow each other in certain passages of the song to create a mood on just on that one section. Yep. Of a song is just man, it's awesome. But, but musically, this track is also a classic case of simplicity, the power of simplicity and simplicity working really well. Like there is very little melody in the music here. The chorus is just two chords, two chords repeated over and over again. The verse yep. is a series of descending uh, two note couplets. The only part of the song with actual musical melody is the middle eight, which obviously is very short. Um, but what it has is, and I, you know, I'm banging this drum. I've talked about it before. Dynamics and rhythm, and that rhythm, that those dynamics and that simplicity, is what makes it really, really stick in the mind. Like this wasn't a single, but I would guess most people who know this album, who have this album or have heard this album, you know, more than a few times, could probably sing that chorus from memory. I mean, I say sing, there's not much yeah. singing going on, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're pushing little children with their fully automatics. It, like, the rhythm of it is so compelling uh, and so strong that even without any melody, it's, uh, it works remarkably well. Well, and then like at that 140 mark where he's like, push them around. And then the, <laughs> on the one side, you have the single notes. And on the other side, very quietly, the chugs start to build up. Yep. On and it's like left left ear right ear uh, thing going on, and then that just sort of builds until everything drops out and it's just the vocals, and then bam, the riff comes in one more time, and that's how they sort of carry the song, you know, to its conclusion. Just uh, awesome. And also, what a great line! They like to push the weak around. Uh, it's not artful, really. It's very very direct, but it is. It's just so well constructed, and it's universal. Yeah, it's it doesn't matter who you are and where you live and what your situation is. Right, could be any country. That is the nature it, of authority. Yeah, any country, any time. Absolutely, they like to push the week around. Man. Yep, dude, powerful stuff. Yeah, great stuff. Track four, then, <laughs> Jet Pilot. Two minutes and five seconds. <laughs> of what the fuck? <laughs> of what the fuck? Do you have any idea what this song's about? I don't. So, <laughs> it's a stretch, but 
there there is an underlying theme in a lot of these songs about the way that we treat nature, the way the relationship that we have with the planet, and the idea that like humankind is not content to exist on this planet it it is compelled to conquer it and so i just feel like there's a lot of themes about the relationship that we have with our own existence but also like our existence on this planet right and so clearly there's environmental themes to that and just the what's happening to the earth overall but just like the nature of man um and how how it takes the gift that we have of this planet right and then and what it ultimately does with that um which is just like the scene from tommy boy where he takes the roll and he's and he squishes it and and like, <laughs> you remember that where, where the woman's freaking out looking at him like he when he's when he wants uh he wants something to eat and he's like see this roll this is like my sale and he like hugs it too closely and he crushed it it's like yeah ultimately we can't just be happy to be here and exist in, in harmony with the planet we have to bend it to our will and um yeah, so that was what I took it. Just the the lyrics are kind of gibberish, but like uh wired were the eyes of a horse on a jet pilot, one that smiled as he flew over the bay, right? And just like to me it was just like nature observing how we interact with it sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean you you may be right. I thought it was about drugs again. <laughs> But it could very well be about drugs again. <laughs> I have no idea. I really don't. And I've seen, I couldn't find any, I did look and I couldn't find anybody from the band, even offhandedly saying what this song was about. So yeah, I've got no idea. Um, I love. Well, and we'll talk about when we get to, to a couple songs from now, like just that the, a, a lot of the lyrics were not intended to make sense and the circumstances that they found themselves find ending up in a song were not in any way intentional. Yeah. And yeah. so like to try to derive deeper meaning for some of this stuff, like some of it, they just had no intention of making it understandable. It just fit the song. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but again, musically, it's still really good. Uh, you know, it's another one that's very heavy. I love the, the trill in maybe trill is not the right word. I'm not sure, but the, the, in Serge's voice, when he sings the skies right before when he sings the skies right before I, yeah. again, that feels like that Armenian, folk influence showing through and the drums in that just the the the, the cadence of the yeah. drums at that point too yeah yeah it's uh again you know just a lovely bit of influence that's just kind of thrown in there in the middle of this really really heavy song <laughs> but it doesn't yep. feel out of place you know they make it they make it work um uh what was it? oh yeah so this is one where i wanted to mention that I, I talked about the rick rubin saying you know overwrite as in write more songs than you need but Darren and Shavo in interviews have both talked about how they also do that to an extent with the musical songwriting for each song. Like they strip songs down, yeah. they overwrite, and then they take things out, you know, because it's easy to put loads and loads of things in there. It's sure. really difficult to then go, no, we don't need that. Take that out. And will the song, will the song still survive? Will it still be good without that part? Um, and I actually wondered, and maybe this is a reach, I don't know, but I wondered if that might be part of the Slayer influence because 
You know, as we talked about many, many years ago now, when we covered a Slayer album, one of the things that we both like about Slayer is that there is nothing in a Slayer song that does not need to be there. You know, it, it is very, yeah. their songs are very yeah. stripped back and every element is just like, is just there. Yes, the solos are chaotic and, and stuff, but even that is a very, very conscious and deliberate part of the songwriting. Uh, and so, yeah, I wondered if that might be some influence on uh, systems songwriting as well. Because it's certainly, this is I a mean, very stripped back I mean, that wouldn't surprise song. me. Yeah, and it, uh, stripped back, but never losing the punch. Yeah. Right. Like, like to your point, like only keeping what needs to be kept, but also ensuring that that push pull dynamic that their music has of like the punch and then the the high wire, you know, feel to it like is it's ever present. And so it's like they they know what the basic ingredients need to be and they'll always have those. Um, and then they're not going to overfill it with stuff they don't need. Yeah. I mean, this is not my favorite song of the album by any means. No. But- but like so many songs on here, it's also not long. So, that, dude, it, the, and that's that is matter, the cure all, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah, a hundred percent. It's like if your song is two minutes long, it's okay if it's not the best song on the album. Yeah, there'll be another. In one. fact, it's better if it's not the best song on the album yeah. because the best song in the album hopefully is longer <laughs> yeah. than two minutes. But like songs that don't overstay their welcome, I mean. It's like yeah, there'll be another one along soon. Don't worry. <laughs> yes, dude, they can't all be A pluses, but like staying too long—that's that's the thing that pushes it over the edge to a song where you're like, this shouldn't be on here. Yeah. Although talking about you know getting to the good songs, let's move on to track five, and that is X. <laughs> another short song but very very good and very powerful this is a song that that uh you know on one level is talking about the armenian genocide um but also like immigration overall population definitely yeah absolutely um i love how it builds this song you've got that sort of frantic scratching guitar and so yes dude you, frantic is another way to throw it. like manic and frantic yeah. i think are two things that they use uh in a lot of their songs but it makes you think in you know, as the song builds in the intro you think oh here we go here we go it's going to be like the last track it's going to be like jet pilot again and then it's not at all instead you get that huge massive crushing riff at half time speed which is just uh, i love it it's so heavy so good but then you also get some of, blast beats as well immediately afterwards for good measure. <laughs> yes, and that's the part where it's like, when you go from that build to the huge crash, you're like, man, this is going to be epic. This song yeah. 
this might be the most epic song on the album. Nope, it's a two-minute song where right after they do that epic crash, they go in another different direction. And you're like, oh. So in some ways, like the first time you hear it, it almost feels like a tease. Because you're like, after that build into that epic sort of, uh, you know, where everything sort of crashes in, you're like, wow, this is going to be, this is going to, they got to, you know, this is going to be a big song. And then they go back to like surgical precision. Yeah. You know, and, and they, uh, it doesn't do what you think it's going to do. Surgical. Hey. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The, the middle eight musical section in this as well the crazy timing of that with the you know the we don't need to ding, 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 that I, yeah. I have not even tried to work you know normally you know that i do try to work out what the timing and the rhythm is of you know or the signature is of song i haven't even tried <laughs> it's so baffling to me i think it's one of those things that you just have to remember by rote there are a couple of pantera tracks where i'm like that as well where i'm just like i just I'll just remember it by rote without even trying to figure out what the actual rhythm is. <laughs> yep. But yeah, really, really good. And as I love that, that opening riff, it is so, so heavy. Well, and the fact that they even do that, the section that you just talked about within a song that's two minutes long. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> have we got time for that? Yeah. They cover <laughs> a lot of ground in <laughs> one minute and 57 seconds. And they move fast. Uh, and they move fast to track six. Uh, which is, I think, the first track we've come across that was a single on this album, and that, of course, is Chop Suey. song that has been written about quite a bit yeah as far as you know background and things like that it's it's probably is it fair to say that this is their most famous song this is the song that i think most people think of when you say system yeah i think so and i think so without people even necessarily remembering the title um because i think the title ends up being a, a almost a throwaway title because it wasn't the original title of the song but it's a play on the original uh, title of the song. Yes, oh, I came across that as well, yeah. yeah. So for people who don't know, this song was originally called Suicide, uh, and the label asked them to change it, given that it was going to be a single. Uh, and so, because this was originally, I think this was it. This one was originally written by Charvo, or was that Toxicity? Oh, no, that was Toxicity, uh, sorry. I think that was Toxicity. Yeah. This is Surge and Darren, That's I right, believe. yeah, sorry. Um, but anyway, the label told them to change it, and Darren came up with the idea of well, if you chop suicide in yep. half, you get chop suey, which I'm not sure whether I believe <laughs> that or whether that's something they've come up with retrospectively, but either way, it works. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and also when you when you look at um, self righteous suicide, if you do self right chop suey side, oh. that also works within that. Um, but either way, the title they ended up with is a play on words of the original title. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whatever the, the true story is. Uh, and to your point about this being their most well-known song, Metal Hammer rated this song as number one on the 100 greatest songs of the century so far. Wow. Wow. Yes. That's crazy. Yep. yep. Out of all the songs. I mean, granted, we're only 23 years in so far. Still, so there's there's a lot of time left. Still, that's, but a, right now, that's a quarter of the way through the century. Uh, yeah, I don't know when they did that list. I, I know it's not like it, it's probably at least five years old at this point or something like that. But even um, so, yes, there's been a that lot is of what music. it was rated. Yeah, a lot of music. Actually, uh, yeah, exactly. So number one on that list. That is crazy. Um, but it, but it is a great track. I mean, everybody knows it. What is there to say? You know, it's got that manic riff with the sliding chords. The you know how the I mean the strings, the piano, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the violin. Piano. Like I forgot about the piano part. Yeah, I mean, just like this is one of those songs where, to your point, I think everyone recognizes it as the system of the down song, um, a system of down song, uh, but when you listen to it deeper, right? The more you listen to it, you start to notice all these little, I mean, there is the, just the, it's a complex song. Yes. And like I said, strings, piano, the, the vocal harmonies, the, the, how sweeping sections of the song are like really deep emotion in, in all elements of it. Like it is, it is a powerful, powerful song. Um, this is one of those like chill inducing songs when you listen to it from beginning to end and the journey that it takes you on. It is a, and the fact that it's number six on this album. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, toxicity is what track 11 or something. Mm-hmm. I mean. <laughs> yes, dude. And so that's the thing. It's almost like these type of songs become the, uh, exception to the rule. You know, this, this, you know, sweeping deep, you know, sink your teeth into it. But again, three minutes and 30 seconds. Well, uh, right. And it is like, still manic as well. I mean, it's got three. It diff- is still manic as well. Different... And it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like they show. So even within three minutes and 30 seconds, the range that they show within this song and the ground that they cover. I mean, it, as we're talking about it, the more I'm realizing is like, when you think of the amount of ground that they cover in the length of these songs, it's it's remarkable, that, yeah. It is remarkable, and it is really like no wasted second in these songs. So now we've talked about like overwriting to cut down to like what the song needs and everything else. But then uh, even on a on a time based level, cutting down a song to the to not waste a second of of un, you know so that there's no second of unneeded time in that song is pretty wild. Especially when there are four separate musical sections that make up the song. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. So it's like, (laughs) you know, other bands would take a song like this and it would be seven to eight minutes long. The fact that it's three minutes and 30 seconds long is like, and I think that goes back to the roller coaster thing, right? Because what is a roller coaster? It's this very, I mean, a roller coaster ride takes like a minute. And the amount of twists and turns and loops and, and you know, uh, ups and downs that you go through on a roller coaster within a minute 
is like listening to one of their songs. Like they're they're going to pack so much into the space that they have that you're almost exhausted when you get through this. But when you look at how much time you just spent, oh, it was three minutes and thirty seconds. <laughs> like it's just it's wild. That that roller coaster analogy works better than I thought. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, right. I yeah. won you over. Ah. <laughs> uh, it also shows that they can, you know, everybody knows, there's no question, everybody knows that System of the Down can be heavy and that Surge can yell at the top of his lungs and all that sort of thing. But then when you get to the chorus, you know, the self-righteous suicide stuff here, it is so beautiful. It is so melodic, so nice. You know, I mean, terrible, tragic lyrics and everything, but just musically, it is so lovely. Uh, you know, it just kind of... It is. It, it, is. it it's shows like, the it's other like... side of them. Yeah. It's like beautiful tragedy, right? And it's like, and this is a place where melodically they're working together to just provide such an emotional connection in a very melodic way, in 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 this way of like the this frustrated, you know, exasperated, you know, cry to the heavens sort of thing, right? And and it's just like the mood that they are able to conjure. And this was a song where it's been well documented that. Um, you know, Serge was struggling with what lyric to put in here, and Rick Rubin told him to grab a book off the wall and open it and just read the first, you know, passage that comes out to him. And he ended up grabbing, uh, I believe, the Bible. And uh, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, I think is what the oh. line was that that jumped out at him. They talk about it in the interview. I'm pretty sure it's that line. But that was... I mean, that's the um, only line here where I could imagine, that's the only section where I could imagine the lyrics coming from the Bible. So, yeah. Right. And so he, but that was an example of like, just it, it, that's like a Rick Rubin thing of like the universe will tell you what you need to, what you need to do. You, yeah. know, you, you need to do in that way of like, just that's, uh, that will happen in the way that it needs to happen sort of thing. Um, the universe will provide. And it yeah. And then it becomes this, you know, moment within the song what? that, and a great for moment. many people is like the most powerful moment, it, it, right? Right, it really is. Uh, and part of the power, one of the things I wanted to mention in rela in relation to that section, because I mean, it is a great section, as you say, it's very powerful. You know, most people will remember it well because it has such an effect, and because it's near the end. One of the reasons that it's powerful, I think, anyway, is because of the the power and the value of repetition. And I've talked about this in some previous episodes when, you know, I've talked about how, for me, some songs maybe don't give you a hook to, to grab onto, you know, or they, they flit around too much and don't repeat phrases enough that you can kind of, you know, that they can get into your memory. And this is connected to that in a way, because it would have been very easy to, you know, when he's repeating the father into your hands, why have you forsaken me in your eyes, forsaken me in your thoughts, forsaken me in your heart, forsaken me. He could have put all of those in one line. You know, he could have just right. put, you have forsaken me in all ways or something, you know, and then written three other lines. But instead, the repetition and the emphasis on all the different ways in which you can be forsaken, right, yeah. in which, you know, Dude, father so has forsaken me really hammers the point home. And that's what makes it powerful lyrically because of that repetition. And so, and then how the last one goes from me to, Oh, that he bends all the way to trust Yeah, when he get just the way he carries it 
from that last repetition into trust in myself, righteous suicide. Like, well, that's just his vocal the skill. emotion. Yeah. It just, it, but just the emotional, you know, again, the anguish of it, right? Yeah. Just like so freaking powerful. Yeah. He's, he's a really good vocalist, you know. It's a shame that I don't like his solo stuff <laughs> as much as I, yeah. you know, you were saying about how they're kind of greater than the sum of their parts. And I think that's absolutely true for System because I don't really... I mean, I don't mind, I don't reject, you know, to their solo stuff, because Darren and Shava were in that other band, I can't even remember what it's called now, um, as well. And, you know, it's fine, but it's nowhere near as good a system. And I feel like the way about Serge's solo stuff as well, like, it's fine, he's still got a great voice, but it's nowhere near as good as this. <laughs> it's such a shame. Yeah. Let's move on to track seven. Bounce. So you were saying about how thematically they do kind of... Not as deep. Yeah, they do kind of <laughs> fall down every so often on this album. This is a very silly song about orgies. Yep. Uh, although it was originally going to be about pyjamas, or so it has been claimed. Now, I don't know if they're having us on again, but I, I've seen both Serge and Shavo separately say that this song was originally it wasn't pogo 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 it was pj 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 pajamas and oh interesting and then uh somebody it may well it wouldn't surprise me if it was darren went don't be daft that's fucking stupid come up with a better lyric um but yeah so what we got was this song of a sort of comedy song really about orgies um which there isn't. I mean, it is funny. It's like I said, it's a comedy song, and it is you know the wordplay, and it's funny. But really, you know, whatever. Musically, though, again, it is. It's a good song. Musically, it holds up. Uh, especially the second minute. It's another one that's less than two minutes long, so it only has two minutes. But in that second minute, it starts to get really interesting musically. I think. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I won't skip it because I like the music, but I just kind of try to ignore the lyrics as best as I can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, this song would be a home on a blink 182 record, right? <laughs> like it's, it's, uh, and I think it's a, it's kind of a, I don't want to say the remnants, but it's definitely feels like a nod to their earlier days. Yes, Right. Yes. Where, where things were more just fun, kind of over the top, the shock value of stuff and things like that, where, um, which is why, like, to your point, I think musically the, the song has a lot going for it, but like, this was one of the songs thematically that I felt like, man, I mean, this rec this record as a whole is incredible and a classic, and that's why we're talking about it and everything else. But when you start to talk about, like, Masterpiece, this is a choice where, like, this is one of a couple that I think don't really fit yeah. 
that you could the, you could the lose. level of yeah just the 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 maturity of the rest of the album you know yeah yeah absolutely agreed let's move swiftly on then from the second shortest song on the album to the longest song on the album and that's track eight forest Yeah, I mean, this one is a real epic at four minutes and two seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is crazy. When I it, mean, unless we're counting the last song with the hidden uh, track thing. But yeah, yes, but, as far yeah. as like actual song duration of the, you know, main song. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but this is another one, dude, that has like the the mood and the screaming and frustration and exasperation and the sweeping epic sort of feel to it. So yeah, to your point, like such a contrast to the song before it in that this one is in every way much yeah. bigger in every way. Well, and the lyrics, funnily enough, actually my first note on this also literally reads longest song on the album at an epic four minutes lol. So <laughs> we both had the same reaction to that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, musically it's wonderful. Uh, you know, it's uh, absolutely. It's, this is the one with the timpani drums or bongos or something as, as well, isn't it? Um, piccolo bongos yes. or something, which is very nice. Uh, lyrically, I'm not actually a hundred percent sure what it's about. I mean, it could be another eco song, as you've mentioned earlier, but um, also it's it's all ambiguous enough that I you can kind of superimpose your own interpretation. Absolutely. Onto it. And 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 two that I've heard, uh, one is that it could be God talking to Jesus, right? Um uh, right. and the other one the other one um which I more gravitate to is is like I feel like it could be Earth talking to humans. You know oh. what I mean? Like the the planet kind of talking to. And this is to me goes back to the whole um like jet pilot song and stuff like that. To me, I feel like one of the themes that's kind of running through it is like the the planet as this sort of observer of what's happening to it. You know what I mean? And like wanting, you know, uh, the human race to understand how it is connected to this world and, and how connected we are to each other and everything else. And, but like not having the power to impact that, just being able to watch what we do with it. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, and you, you could be, and, yeah, you could be actually right. See, again, my, I've always assumed that this song is about a mental breakdown. <laughs> but like I say, I don't know. That's just sort of me projecting 
my own interpretation onto these lyrics. I hadn't even considered that it could be a sort of a Gaia thing, but now that you say it, I can see it, and maybe it is. It's like, tell everyone in the world that I'm you. Yeah, yeah. Take this promise to the end of you. Like, we're all all either here or not here. (laughs) Like, we either, you know, we either see ourselves in each other and understand how we're connected to the world or we're all not here and more great like, riffs as well like darren oh, dude. darren really was a riff master or is a riff master isn't he i don't there's any yeah. question of that just some great riffs in this song but just this like the depth of you know when he's screaming why can't you see that you are just the yeah, yeah, yeah. vocal like epicness of that right just the like screaming out sort of thing i love the they're so able to capture it not only like a picture in your head but just a a mood of like that anguish right of talking to someone who doesn't understand right and and just trying to get through to someone sort of thing i i think they do such a good job like just the the delivery of the vocals consistently amazing yeah well, and yeah, I mean, Serge's, you know, vocal ability, I think is and, just amazing and really on show on this album. And like musically too, right? Like when it, when he's saying, why can't you see it's boom, 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 boom. Well, and he's right? following as the guitar as, the, as well. Yeah, exactly, dude. Just like every single one of those words is punctuated. But then halfway through the line, he moves away from the guitar he, melody. But, and yeah. that, but that's when, and that's when melodically yeah. he goes off. You know, it's like, dude, just like within one line. Yep. Yeah, it's great, uh, great craftsmanship. Yep. Uh, let's move on then to track nine, ATWA, stands for Air, Trees, Water, Animals, apparently. As Charles Manson. As defined by Charlie Manson. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The interrelated life support systems of Earth. Air, trees, water, animals. Yeah, yeah, you can blame Darren for that one. Darren's a bit of a Manson nut, it would seem. (laughs) Yes. Again, to me, like the, the, but the underlying theme of the lyrics to me feels like, again, the Earth observing how we are treating it. Oh, totally. And how how ultimately the earth becomes a reflection of us, right? Hey, you are me, not so pretty. Like, we're, what what we've now done to the earth, we're, you know, it's starting to resemble that, you know? Um, But all the world I've seen before me passing by. Yep. Silent my voice, I've got no choice. Like, all the world I've seen before me passing by. And again, like that, 
the the mood uh just the way that that's delivered you know emotionally yeah. the emotional deliverance of all the world i've seen before me passing by just the the sadness of that um, oh, and, and then, then which then immediately yeah. <laughs> uh, immediately goes to outrage and again it's that push pull man it's really um it's just so like powerful yeah the, the, I love that delivery of, I mean, the, the way that it switches, as you say, from that kind of emotional, soft, uh, tragic feel to suddenly the the sheer anger and frustration. You don't care about how I feel. I don't feel there anymore. And the way Serge even rolls the R on, I don't feel there anymore. You know, every, every yep. line just lovely. Um, you know, again, great control of his voice. Um, but then in the, uh, is it a middle eight? I'm not even sure if you could call it that. When he's singing i don't see i don't hear i don't speak and you, again you've got darren shouting anymore oh, dude. behind him it's so, so really powerful awesome yeah just like yeah the pure emotion of that um almost barely you almost can't even understand it right like it's barely a word yeah the way that he's screaming, like it's so, well, I think if, it's so it, emotion filled that it barely holds its structure right if you hadn't heard it in the chorus, you know, several times already, then you might not realize, but yeah, you know, because you have, yeah. you do. And Dude. so you can, you can be kind of incoherent and people will still pick up on it, which again, yeah. you know, smart songwriting. And again, two minutes, 56 seconds. Yeah. Although that's one of the longer songs. <laughs> on the album. I know, but, but like <laughs> nearly it, three minutes. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. No, to, to fit all that in is in less than three minutes. Yeah. Is uh, very impressive uh what's next track 10 science pretty straightforward yeah i mean um, i find this one a bit do- this is one of the ones that i find a bit dodgy in terms of its lyrical message but i will say that the lyrical construction and again serge's delivery of it i think is superb you know put aside the words and just yes. sort of like take the sounds and and the way he delivers them and the way they're constructed i think are fantastic um i i just yeah i kind of i'm not really on board <laughs> with the overall no but here's might i attempt to bridge go on go on <laughs> uh, in this because i do i am with you in that right because i think that if we accept the message at face value of like science has failed us it's all about faith that i don't agree with and i think you i think you could definitely take this song at face value like that 
But I think the idea that there are things outside of science or that science cannot explain that we have to incorporate into how we think about things, that, okay, yeah. I think, wow. is worth exploring. And, and actually, it made me think of, because I was just in a training yesterday, I was doing a training at, at my job yesterday, and one of the things that we talked about in, in the education field was the idea of learning with an emotional brain. And one of the things that, there's actually a, a YouTube talk that you could check out, um, the woman's name is Mary Helen Imordino Yang. Uh, and But basically, one of the things that she was talking about is like, historically, we've thought, and scientists have thought, that emotions interfere with clear-headed thinking. And that in order to learn well, we have to get our emotions out of our thought. Like, that was a a, a, a belief for a long period of time. But neuroscience has actually shown that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the way that human brains actually learn, and this is something that science eventually came to understand, was that, um, you know, because of the, in an evolutionary sense, like, the, the purpose of our brain is to keep us alive and to steer our actions and our thoughts and behaviors so that we remember the things that matter, so that we learn the things that we think are gonna, we're going to need in the future, and we don't spend a lot of time thinking about stuff we think doesn't matter or that we think is not important. So basically, she was just saying, like, from an evolutionary standpoint, your brain is taught to remember the things that matter, right? And remember sure. the things yeah. that you care about. And and removing emotion from that, when you start to look at it that way, makes no sense. But that, to me, was a great example of something that, like, you there, there is a place where science has not fully figured something out yet, or science is not accounting for something that might be outside of what is currently understood. And having a view where where you can accept that those things influence one another, I think is um, how I choose to interpret the song. Because like you, as uh, you know, the idea of like disregarding science is not, I'm not on board with that. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a good, I think you're being generous, but you know, but that is a good way of, that is a much more palatable message to me. <laughs> for Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, in, in a song like this too, like the, this, um, the way that the song is, shows the disdain for science right is i think in a reactionary way oh, right yeah, it's definitely. one of those things of like not not feeling like that has been accounted for in the discussion for so long that the result of that is just wanting to completely dismiss science right and so um yeah and it probably is a generous uh, interpretation of the song but i do um i do choose to interpret it as like why not both yeah but musically uh it's another one that's really strong. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, why I'm, I, I, it's, I'm annoyed that I find the lyrics a bit dodgy because musically, I think this is one of the strongest songs on the album. Uh, and that riff, like the main riff is actually quite thrashy. I think like, couldn't you imagine say overkill playing that riff? You know, that whole... Oh, I totally could, could imagine Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, it, it's like, it, it's probably the thrashiest they get in terms of just riff uh, lines on the album. And yeah, I think it's really, really good, really strong. Also, the middle eight, where he sings in Armenian, uh, the, the music under that, again, is very... This feels like sort of Caucasus folk stuff. Uh, and I think if the fan wiki... There is a fan wiki for System of a Down, because of course there is. If that is to be believed, I think that the music there is actually played in the middle eight by Arto Chunch uh, Boyachan, who is the uh, musician who also plays on the hidden track, you know, the Armenian folk musician who plays on the hidden track at the end of the album. 
So again, tying that together, you know, taking that into account that this, that there's a whole Armenian folk section in the middle of this song, uh, along with the lyrical message is kind of, yeah, it makes it a bit of a, a bit of a mixed bag for me. But as I say, just on a pure musical level, I think it's really strong. One of the strongest on the album. Agreed. And again, you know, sub three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, just lo- lots of ground covered in that uh, two minutes and 42 seconds. Yep. Not quite so much ground covered in the uh, less than two minutes of track 11, which is Shimmy. I mean, so much so that I almost skipped by it and went straight to toxicity <laughs> at that point. But yeah, um, very sort of, uh, and I apologize to anyone who can hear my dog making a cameo right now, but apparently there's a human being walking down our street. How dare they? So yeah, shimmy, I mean, just like the kind of factory model of living, right? Uh, you know, paint by numbers, go through the motion of, of yeah. uh, what's expected of you sort of thing. Um, good groove as far as like you know just super crushing heavy um elements to it but yeah it's not it's not a complicated song um it's a pretty straightforward song it's not lyrically dense and so it just it it just hits you yeah every metal band must do a song about the evils of the, you know the nuclear family <laughs> yes yes totally, 100%. <laughs> it's the law uh and that's yeah that's what this is it's kind of i mean it, it's slightly filler the chorus is is fine it's not the best um but again it, it's literally this is the shortest song on the album it's one minute 51 according to itunes so again it's in and out and uh you know no real harm done uh the most what's the whole thing oh 44 minutes all right i had to just double check that to see overall that's right yeah the most music what was the requirement was is it 40 minutes was that the requirement for what's considered what was considered an album oh do you know i don't by 2001 i'm not sure if that was really oh maybe that didn't matter anymore yeah, yeah. especially as we were in the cd era and some bands were putting out albums i'm still were, thinking of records <laughs> yeah no some bands by this point were putting out albums yeah. that were like 70 minutes long so that's true yeah yeah that's a good point so i'm not sure that that really mattered anymore w- so it wasn't a must include a certain no yeah. and you know for one minute 51 i'm not sure there were, anybody would have got knocked for that um the one thing i was going to say was uh the one nice piece again, which is a kind of you know sort of Armenian or at least Asian uh, folk influence, because that part of the world is technically classed as uh, Northwest Asia, um, is the guitar line during the verse, uh, which Serge follows 
when he sings boy and girl at the end of each verse, the ah, you know, that thing. That that's nice. Because again, that's just putting their their folk influences in in an otherwise very heavy and sort of not very consequential song. Um but yeah, the rest of it, as I say, it's it's over in less than two minutes anyway. Yep. Track twelve. The big one. Toxicity. Again, a well-documented song. And I believe the uh, original title was version 7.0, right? That's right. This was um, originally... So Charvo wrote this originally, the bassist. But the rest of the band, this is as how he tells the story anyway, the rest of the band just didn't like it. They didn't... T- well, not that they didn't like it, but that it didn't wasn't anything special. They didn't take to it. And they never rehearsed it. Right. Didn't work on it. And he just... He was... They got to the end of the album recording and he was a bit bummed out going like, oh, I liked that song, but we, di- we didn't do anything with it. And then right at the end of recording, Darren came up to him and said, hey... Remember that song that you wrote? Well, I've kind of rewritten it a bit and done my own thing with it. What do you think? He'd like chopped it up in bits and rearranged it. And that was toxicity. And Chavo is just like, well, shit, that's great. <laughs> like, yeah. you've done it. And it was a reference to AOL. Yes. <laughs> uh, which I think, I forget what version five, they were on at the time. I remember hearing it. Five, and he was just thinking, by, you know, in so many years, it'll be up to 7.0. That'll be the future, man. Um, yep. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, I'm not actually sure who wrote the. I don't know whether Chavo originally wrote these lyrics as well. I, th- I saw Darren said that at one point that this song is about ADHD, but I also read. Uh, but that. he said yep. that several years after the fact. So as I've already said a couple of times in this episode, I'm never sure how much I believe musicians and lyricists and what have you when they say that sort of thing several years after the fact because by that time they've had time to sort of see how the song has been received they've heard other people talk about it and discuss it and so i'm never quite you know i'm always wary of how much that's actually true or how much they're they're sort of building up the myth of it but this song is worthy of having myths built of it because it is absolutely brilliant and for me it's another eco message right um yeah just the like the audacity of of humans believing that they can own the world how do you own disorder right how do you own how do you how do you stake claim to this you know overall sort of thing um 
Yeah, so that's kind of how I... But again, clearly by that point, I had had it in my head that that was a major theme running through a lot of the songs on this album. So I just, I think I'm looking at it through that lens, but just the idea of like the audacity to think that um, you, you know, as as a part of this overall ecosystem are the are the you know owner of it or the you know the one in control sort of thing right yeah i took it to be another anti-authoritarian song as well like you know the certain amount is kind of railing against the people who run big cities like los angeles and think that they can put the city under their thumb as it were and you know instead this is kind of saying like you you can't you can't control something this big well and isn't that a similar conversation to the to the whole planet right just the idea of like trying to trying to being arrogant enough to think that you can control the uncontrollable right and that you can that you can put structure around something that is inherently not to be structured right um and that you get to decide sort of thing i feel like so yeah i think you can work on both of those levels yeah this is also I, i'm pretty sure this is the track where uh, i read a story from john the drummer um about how he was trying to focus on yes. did you did you see the same story he was trying to focus yeah. on getting the beat down for this song but Shavo wouldn't shut up and he, he was he was eventually getting really angry with him and eventually said like okay fine how the fuck would you do it and Shavo started just waving his arms up and down in time or out of time or whatever sort of sort of almost taking the piss and so he caught so or no sorry he wasn't but then john said what you mean like this taking the piss yes and then yeah. they were like oh actually that's really good <laughs> yeah exactly like it, it came from him being like you know tr- trying to play it like a jackass yeah. and then it being like oh yeah and yeah no that actually yes that is it and now ironically it's one of his best known drum pieces like everybody yeah. knows that rhythm that drum piece you're like oh yeah that's toxicity <laughs> Yeah, which again doesn't even feel out of place for this band. No, no, absolutely. Even not. though it has a funny sort of origin story, like definitely you, you wouldn't think twice about it, other than it, it's awesome. But you wouldn't think twice about it as being like out of style for this band. No, totally not. It's uh, yeah, I love I love stories like that about the kind of random stuff in the studio where they go, oh, actually, yeah, that's really good. <laughs> and that also reminds me when Darren was doing the Ernie Ball interview, he said something. What did he say? Let me just pull it up. Um, about like not having rules. I feel like I don't have any rules, and I think that people who listen to my music expect that from me. As an artist, that's a freedom. I'm not afraid to try things. And I think that that is feels similar to them as a band, right? Yeah. As, of like, there at no time is there a sense that they're following some a, a sort of uh, template yeah. or, yeah, traditions. Some, you know, like they're, it, it is what it needs to be and it is what they decide it's going to be. It's not, uh, they're not looking at a cheat sheet from somebody else, you know? Yeah um and yeah i mean obviously everybody knows this is another big single if people if chop suey isn't their best known song then this is surely the you know the it's this instead it's got to be one of those two i think um and it's a great song the coda at the end i absolutely love that's kind of like uh it's got that slight swing feel to it it's almost completely unrelated to the rest of the song you do hear 
the music from this section played for a couple of lines before the final chorus, but there's no vocals there. And then it comes back here right. as the coda with vocals over it. When I became the sun, I shone life into the man's hearts, which again, just grammatically bad, but sounds great. <laughs> yeah, um, it definitely does. Yeah, it's such a, it's it a, definitely does. a great way to cap off a great track. It really is. I think this one, this is one that well deserves its iconic status. Agreed. Uh, if only the same could be said for track 13, which is Psycho. Yeah, I mean, like basically, bounce too, right? Yeah, although um, even worse. It, in it, a just way. in terms of like thematically for the album and stuff like that. Like, is it? Um, yeah, but it's worse because like the thing about bounce is that it's kind of, it's at least celebratory, and everybody's having fun and sort of, I don't know, feels like it's a good time thing. This does not feel like a good time. No. Truly dodgy lyrics. Um, uh, but again, musically, you know, they, musically, it's great. That solo bass opening and the big build are brilliant. The, you know, it's very heavy, uh, Serge's performance. And again, the, 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 the lyrics and the way they sound or the vocals, I should say, and the way they sound and Serge's performance are brilliant. You just have to kind of ignore the actual words <laughs> that he's singing. Yeah. And, uh, I haven't read, you know, obviously I think you can, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to interpret the lyrics in this one too, but I also have heard, I don't know if it was from interviews or not, but just an interpretation of this as like the the vibe of the whole music scene in general, right? As opposed to... Um, oh yeah, I don't think it was recounting a particular incident necessarily. Right. Um, but still, there are better ways of covering that subject i think definitely dude and like again to go back to uh just that idea of musically sure works within the album again the album overall as a whole absolutely incredible but if you made a couple different choices elevated to a masterpiece yeah right you know as far as like if you if if this song and if bounce weren't here um, or if they had different lyrics. Yeah, or if they had different lyrics, absolutely. Um, then, to me, it's like, how is it not pretty much a perfect record? Yeah. You know? And, I mean, as we've said, it is an enormously successful record regardless, you know? A six times platinum. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, <laughs> the stuff we're nitpicking here has not hurt its commercial success or its status as no. a legendary 
iconic album. Um, but yeah, from a, especially from you know the perspective of 2024, looking back, you're like, oh wow, for yeah. sure, dude. I mean, even and again, this is 20 years ago. When anytime we talk about an 80s album, right? I mean, there's right. multiple examples yeah. on every one of those albums where you're like, geez, Louise, like this is. But it also you know. shows you how slow the progress is. That 20 years after that, absolutely, you still got this. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, one thing that did amuse me or does amuse me about this track, is we are 13 songs into this album. 13 songs and, you know, almost 40 minutes into this album. And this is the one with a guitar solo. <laughs> like, finally. I didn't even think of it that. It is the first song, the only song on the album wow. with a proper guitar solo. I mean, given that it's about rock and roll debauchery, maybe that's deliberate yeah. and appropriate. I don't know. But it's not a very sort of, you know, it's not like it's a hair metal style solo either. It's quite a good solo. Right. So, That's true. Yeah, it's just... Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. What? Let's not... Let's not disparage hair metal style solo. <laughs> I wasn't disparaging. I almost agreed with you for a second there, and then I was like, wait a second. Hold on a I'm second. I'm not disparaging them. I'm saying that <laughs> if the reason this song has a, so has a solo is because it's about rock and roll debauchery. Right, 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 then right. If they didn't mirror that style. Exactly. Yeah, that's all yeah. I'm saying. No, I got you. All right. Peace. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, this is the metal That's arguments. That's true, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's so weird. Like I say, it's a good solo, but it's just so weird. That the, of all the songs on the album, 13 songs in, this is the one with the solo. It makes you wonder how many... Well, actually, no, we can tell, because, of course, all the songs on Steal This Album were the rejected songs from this album. Um, I'm trying to remember if any of those have got solos now. I wish I went back and listened to that before we did this one, but I didn't. No, I didn't to it after. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a few years since I listened to it. Um, so yeah, another one where it's kind of you know musically it's great, lyrically disappointing, uh, but the performances are all good. Uh, luckily, the same cannot be said of track fourteen, which is Aerials. Because we are the ones that want to play. What a fantastic song. It's one of my favorite songs on the album. Yeah, and separate from this album as a whole, what a fantastic song, period, yep. right? Yeah. I mean, just like, a, like, I don't know, man, just from a, and what's cool about this is like the ride that they've taken you on to this part of the album to then come here and be like, now this is just like, wow. Yeah, by the way, okay. we can do this as well. Yep, yep. Like, we've shown you a lot of stuff so far to here. 
what about this? And you're like, damn. <laughs> like, okay, wow, you guys have that in the bag too. Okay. Um, incorporates so much of what their signature sound is, all those elements that we've talked about through all of this, but in a more refined way. What to really in service of a more traditional song. Yes. But to show that again, just to show like we can do this if we want to as well, and we can do it incredibly well. Yeah. With not lo- without losing who we are in service of that. Totally. Yeah. Um yeah. The freaking violins. Uh the oh just the way the opening builds, um, chill inducing. You know, that guitar line is just uh you can feel it building to something. That opening guitar line, which is also the chorus, you know, it's basically the same uh, line, line yeah, as sure. the chorus, just played softer. Um, it always reminds me of, of all the bands of My Dying Bride. It's a really doomy line. Uh, there's a track on the first album as well, Spiders. That's it, Spiders. It has the same, same kind of like, this could be a My Dying Bride line or you know a sort of doom band line i'm just using my damn bride yeah no i now that you say that i could totally see that i I did wonder i hadn't really thought about that consciously before i was you know kind of examining this while i was listening to it and it did make me think like is that one of the reasons that i like system because some of their lines are actually quite doomy i don't know (laughs) but it is it's such a great riff the chorus i mean what a chorus my goodness so heavy so those three notes dun 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 just played oh my god oh, man just oh, love it love it just like the the again like exactly what the song needs and no yes. more yeah exactly to to punctuate that moment to punctuate that mood that emotion um and you know we've talked before about like what does heavy mean that's that's heavy. heavy. Yep. You, that is You heavy. can't explain it. It's just, yeah. It just pull down into the depths of your soul, dude. Like, just you just feel it. And that is heavy. Yep. And again, the, the highs and the lows of the ride that they take you on and just the, you know, bringing it down to a fine point and then making it as expansive as it could possibly be. Like, just that, the way the song breathes is really... Uh, just impressive. Well, and it combines it combines feelings of intimacy with grandeur and epicness. And I, I I'm struggling to articulate it because it's really hard to describe how. And I don't really know how. That's one of those you know some songs do that. They have that ability to, on the one hand, feel really really close and intimate. And then simultaneously feel like they are sort of world encompassing, and this absolutely does that. And it's it's one of the reasons yeah. I think that it's such a brilliant and, track. And also like loss and despair, right? Like the the those and longing and and oh, yeah. um, regret and guilt. Like it's all there. I mean, you look at the lyrics, and again, you, there are different ways that you can interpret this stuff. But like, we are the ones that want to play, always want to go, but you never want to stay. We are the ones that want to choose, always want to play, but you never want to lose. Like just wanting to control 
wanting to control things, wanting to not have to deal with the consequences of things, of, of choices that you make and things like that. There's just so many things that you can take away from, from that. And, um, just the lament of someone who's sort of recognizing that, right. Well, or, or something that's recognizing and, that. And right? also the sort of the, the greater spiritual aspect of them, you know, life is a waterfall. We're one in the river and one again after the fall. And then even the chorus. When you lose small mind, you free your life. Uh, right. It's, you know, lyrically, this is an absolute redemption <laughs> after the previous track, I think. Well, <laughs> it's such a great And again, one, one interpretation of it is that it's about uh, letting go of, the, of believing that it's just all about the individual, right? And, and understanding how we're all part of something bigger yeah. and, and all connected in some way and stuff like well, that. And so, and also possibly, but again, that's one interpretation. Yeah. Of that. And also possibly letting go of concern about death and, you know, this sort of aspects of the possibility right, of reincarnation and, and all that sort yeah. of thing. It's, and again, these are all things that we're projecting onto them. Nobody knows. Again, I, this is another track. And I did look again where I didn't see any member of the band definitively say what this song is about. Um, but that's probably good because you can, you know, yeah. take it. Many I, I think it is ways. better that yeah. way. Um, um, but yeah, it's such a great track. It's a great way to end the album, especially with um, the very right at the very end of the song. You hear that sitar and a, a tiny little oh, the symbol. You know, the, the miniature. I don't know what they're called. The miniature symbols uh, playing simultaneously. What a lovely, again, a lovely nod to Asian music uh, and to all their their folk influences. Um, yeah. Well, just- and I think like this is another song where it's uh, particularly clear just how great the drum work is. Oh yeah. Overall, yeah, yeah. And just the you know this is a great example of how you can have a great how you can have a strong and raw snare drum sound without going overboard. Right. You don't have to have the Bob um, Rock snare. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's a great contrast, right? Because when you when you hear the just the snare in certain parts of this, it's it's got that rawness to it. But but it's dialed to perfection so that it is what you feel what it's intended for you to feel and it doesn't become a distraction, or at least it didn't to me as I'm listening to this stuff. But the drums just feel so powerful in uh, and th- there's just some great drum moments in the song as well as far as punctuating emotion yeah. you know throughout the whole album i mean john domian is a great great drummer and does he's one of those drummers that does a lot with a little like he mm-hmm. doesn't have a huge 50 piece drum kit or anything like that and he doesn't need it um there's he's what he plays is good enough and the way he plays it is powerful enough that just a basic yep. kit is is really all he needs and the drumming throughout this album i mean like i said the musicianship throughout from all four of them throughout is superb but yeah the drumming definitely yeah. perhaps gets overlooked a little because i would imagine i would say that i think mus- from a musicianship standpoint they all get overlooked because i think for a lot of people the vocals are what mm, true. they they focus so much think on about surge. when they think about system of a down yeah. Um, both Darren and Serge, right? And so, but I think the the more you listen to them, you do start to really develop that appreciation for how talented they are and how, to go back to what, you know, Darren was saying about that sort of freedom, just like how unique they each are um, and how that really works 
as a unit. Yeah. I, I watched, actually, to think about the simplicity of the drums, I watched somebody do, uh, on YouTube, watched a drum cover of Toxicity. Uh, and as I recall, they had one tom. They had a snare, a tom, and a floor tom, and that was it. You know, so, like, not even a second regular tom, like many drummers would have. Uh, and, and it yeah. sounded fantastic. There was nothing missing from their interpretation of the track. Do you know what I mean? Um so yeah, it's uh, as I say, definitely. I, I feel possibly an overlooked drummer, which is a shame. So that is the end of the regular tracks on the album. And then, as we said at the start, there is uh, a hidden track. So we'll call it track fifteen, and it doesn't have a title, but most people call it Arto because the guest musician on it is the one I mentioned earlier, Arto Tunchboyachan, who is an uh, Armenian musician who now lives and works in america he's a multi-instrumentalist so yeah it's called arto that's about two minutes long yeah it's very short but it is essentially a full-on armenian folk song you know good on them yep and i like it better as a hidden track because it it's still connected to Ariel's. oh i see yeah you yeah. know what i mean in that way and i think Ariel's is such an amazing closure closer that to have that be the hidden track that sort of rewards you staying with it. You know what I, I mean? Um, it, it feels like I, I just like it as a, like almost like a continuation to that song, but yeah, awesome. Uh, to me, like just a great way to, it's almost like a grounding exercise on your way out of this album. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it, it, it is like a, it, it's like you, gives you space to just think about everything that you just listened to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a really mellow track. It's apparently a traditional Armenian church hymn or their interpretation of one anyway. Uh, yes. With, yeah. Tunch Boyachan, he's a multi-instrumentalist. He plays most of the instruments on this track. Uh, I think the band play one or two in the background and that's them um, sort of chanting in the background as well. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a good track. It's a nice nod to their heritage. Roots has got a lot to answer for here. I feel, um, I, you know, I do wonder, given that it's fairly, it's not long after Roots this uh, album. I did wonder if, like, you know, they would have done it or wouldn't have done it if Roots hadn't been a success doing that for Sepultura. Mm. Um, but either way, yeah, it's a it's a a good track and, like I say, a lovely nod to their heritage. A good way to end it. Agreed. And that's the album. That is 44 minutes of System of a Down, of one of the finest metal albums uh, ever, really. Certainly, of yeah. again, of this century. And, and a 44 minutes packed with... Just <laughs> packed an, with everything. <laughs> a, it, it, with an immeasurable amount, right? It just really... Uh, 
even more impressive when you think about the fact that this is this is a less than 45 minute album yes system thinking about it they're kind of like the musical embodiment of that meme of like you know do you want this this or this yes (laughs) (laughs) right yeah just just throw it all in there yeah just but with with a strength of songwriting that it all works somehow and performance that it all works yeah remarkable i've said that a few times but it really is i think this is a remarkable album in so many ways again the commercial success the fact that it had any commercial success at all is astounding the fact that it had mainstream commercial success is even more astounding um yeah such a such a good and important album you know i wonder how many bands we talked about at the start you know saying uh, nobody sounds like system some bands have tried for sure, but it did make me wonder right. how many bands that came after this album or that recorded after this album, even if they were around before, felt a license, a freedom to experiment and to try things that hadn't been done in metal before or things that nobody else was doing or that maybe tradition would say you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. I wonder how many people threw those rule books away after this album especially given that it was so successful as well. Um, you know, I, I hope I that, also, that was the case. I also think it's a lesson in kind of being true to your own sound too, in the way that like, if you're going to experiment, it's not one song. Right. It's not, you know, it's not like, it's not, cause there's really no song from a musical standpoint, again, not necessarily lyrically, but there's really no song on here. That's a real departure from like, it. it is almost like the ultimate, refinement of their sound like the the cohesion of you know what they're doing so yeah i mean i i'd be interested to know if if it influenced bands to lean into that experimentation for an entire album mm. you know like i mean i, I hope it did you know because i like that sort of thing but uh either way it certainly cemented systems reputation uh, and position and legacy as an absolutely revered band within this yeah. genre that we love one that everyone is trying to get to come back together on a you know yearly basis. And it's so, never going to uh, happen. <laughs> I mean, I say never, you know, but they are. No, I mean, they came back a couple of years ago to do the charity songs that raised a, a good amount of money. But yeah. I think, but I think that also speaks to just knowing, you know, the, the more you read about the their own, um, you know, personalities within the band and and beliefs and all that kind of stuff. I do feel like it seems like for Surge. To come back and do a record with this band again, there would need to be a reason. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like a compelling reason well, to do there that. There would, but not only that, but he, I saw a, an interview where he talked about the ethics of it as well. He apparently, and again, this is kind of, you know, after the fact and sort of secondhand, so take it as you will, but I saw him basically claim, uh, or somebody else on his behalf, as I said, reporting what he'd said. That's why it's secondhand. But claimed that he essentially wanted to, uh, towards the end of the band's life, this is one of the reasons that they split up, he wanted to make everything more democratic and more fair. He wanted, because at the moment, the, the way they exist is they're a unanimous band. Uh, you know, which is not that unusual. There's a few bands like that where they don't do anything as a band unless everybody in the band agrees. And what he wanted was 
to make it a bit more democratic where whoever wrote one particular song made a final decision, but every, everybody participated and was credited with the songwriting, because that's the other thing at the moment. All the songwriting is basically credited to him and Darren with Shavo having one or two credits here right. and there. Um, so poor John, certainly on this album, I'm not actually sure, I didn't look into the other ones, but certainly on this album got no songwriting royalties at all because he's not credited right. as a songwriter on any of the tracks, which has got to be a bummer when it's your best-selling album, when it sells as many copies as this. For sure. Um, and that it was allegedly one of the big clashes that he had with Darren uh, and one of the reasons why they can't find a way to get back in the studio and record together because Darren won't agree to that and Serge won't do it without that. Now, maybe that's changed since, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if it hasn't because, as we've said a few times, you know, one thing about Serge is that he does seem to be very, very stubborn and very... Uh, he walks his walk. He walks his talk, I should say. You know, he has his principles and he yeah. doesn't really well, modify them for anything. And again, like, you know, it's, it, for the other band members too, right? Like, he became the face of the band, whether they liked it or not. Yeah. Whether he, he liked it or not. The, well, t- absolutely. Whether he liked it or not and whether they liked it or not, right? And And what they were looking to get out of that ended up, I think, being different things as well. And so, to your point, like... It, and not only it, putting all that aside, let's say they all were very excited about coming back and doing something together again. Um, and the couple songs they released a few years ago definitely still felt like System of a Down um, and fit within you know what we know them to be. But when you look at a record like this, and I think this proved itself moving forward, the expectations on them oh, yeah. if they came back and put and tried to do another record, it's like as the reunion record. Yeah. Yeah, forget it. How do you ever? How do you ever possibly come close to meeting those expectations? You couldn't. You you couldn't. You could you could literally release the you know make this record again and people still would be disappointed. Uh, yeah, because and so is it better to be this band that people look back on and say, "Holy crap, man! I, they were done before their time." And I, man, I'd love to hear new music from them and have that be, you know, you leave them wanting more. Exactly. Yeah, right? I think it where, is where it's just like I don't see how it. Uh, and if you get back together now, where all these guys are in their mid fifties, right? That's the other thing. Well, how many age, years? They're our age. Yeah, they're not young guys. Yeah. How many years do they have left? And and what? So it's not like, oh, we're going to get back together and we have 20 more years of putting albums out together and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, I just don't. And I'm sure they've thought about that too, right? It's diminishing returns at some point of like, what are the chances that we're only going to hurt our legacy? Yeah, totally. By coming back, you know, and doing that. And which, you know, as long as they can all still perform live and whenever they, you know, do get together to do any live music or anything like that, like people get to relive that anyway. So. And, and they are doing that. Yeah. I mean, they do do that occasionally. They've said that essentially, as far as, you know, I think it was a lion, it might've been Serge or Darren. One of them said, essentially system is a touring band now or a live band. I should say now, not that they could do tours, but you know, they're essentially a live band now uh, and don't expect any more records from them, but they'll get together every so often to play live. Yeah. Um, and they have more than enough to fill out a set oh, list. Really? Yeah. Even as a headliner. Yeah. So like, Totally, totally. But yeah, it's yeah. it's like um, Sisters of Mercy famously have not released an album since 1990. Uh, and every so often, Andrew Eldritch threatens that he's going to make another album and release it, and then he never does. And at, at this point, everybody's like, well, A, you're clearly never going to, and B, 
it could never possibly live up to expectations now anyway. I mean, that's literally 34 years now. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's no way that you could possibly release anything that would live up to expectations uh, after that amount of time. And yeah, I, mean, I dude, think it's the same it, system. It's the same with me and Cake, man. Last album was 2010. It's 2024 now, man. I've been waiting 14 years, but with each passing year. Yep. yep. But they're still great live. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And the sisters still play live. Fields of the Nephilim is another one. I, I often joke about how long it's been since the last Fields of the Nephilim album. That was 2005, I think that was released. Again, at this point, but they still play live fairly regularly. Uh, but at this point, I'm like, it's nearly 20 years now since your last album. Just don't forget it. it you know, I've given up expecting it. Um, which is a shame, but, you know, as you say, better that than something disappointing, I think. Yeah, but I think we can all agree, uh, you know, as we said at the top of this episode, you know, a band that definitely needed to be discussed oh, yeah. in, its, in its own episode at some point. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, uh, in a moment, let's find out who we're going to discuss in a whole episode next. Oh, hey. But before we do, uh, I will remind everyone that if you enjoy the show, please spread the word, tell your friends, rate us on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, you know, any, wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out with uh, a pledge of just $1 per episode, not per month, per episode. So even though we've been, you know, eight weeks, whatever, since our last episode, nobody's been charged in that time. You only get charged when we release an episode. But it does help support the show. It helps pay for our, you know, website costs, domain costs, you know, help us buy albums when we need to go and buy one for an episode, that sort of thing. So uh, it, it is very much appreciated. If you want to talk to us, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out or you can go to thrash which has links to email where you can email us and our twitter accounts which are still active twitter is still alive just about even though it's kind of on life support now uh but we are with both there i'm also on all the other <laughs> social media sites as well i'm not sure if you are as well brian um but people can find us uh, certainly on Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. I mean, Twitter and uh, the most active I am with anything around the show is the Facebook group. I'm, yeah. I'm in there multiple You're times in there a week. So if, you, me. If, yeah. Yeah. if you go in there, if you go to Twitter, uh, not much activity there now. And other than that, probably LinkedIn, which is not, <laughs> not the place where a lot of metal's being discussed. No. Uh, you know, but yeah, I'm not and not as active on social any days, but definitely by far the most active I am is on our Facebook page. Like I am there, if not daily, multiple times a week. For yeah, sure. like I say, you're you're definitely more active on the Facebook group than than I am. Um, so yeah, those are all the ways that you can get in touch with us or support the show. Thank you very much for listening. And now, Brian, please tell us what are we going to discuss in the next episode. Well, I feel like people have been waiting for this one for so long, and, you know, other people probably thought, there's so many more 80s bands that we can talk about. How have we not dug into this particular band or that particular band? So um, we're actually going to talk about an 80s band, but we're going to dial it back one decade before the album that we talked about today. So we're going to go back to 1991. Oh, okay. And we are going to talk about the second studio album from skid row oh and that album is called slave to the grind oh that's the see that's the only album of theirs i've heard of 
Well, we're going to talk a lot about it next time around. Yeah. If you ask me to name a Skid Row album, that's the only one I would be able to name. So that's good. Yeah. And definitely, I think in terms of like uh, interesting discussions, I feel like the the one to talk about just because of where it sits for them musically and sort of what came before and after and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, Slave to the Grind, Skid Row. That's the next episode. Awesome. All right. So you've all got your homework. Uh, we'll see you next time. And in the meantime, keep thrashing. Take care, everyone. <laughs>